Radio. We're broadcasting worldwide on this Sunday show for November 20th, 2016. Year is rapidly approaching a close, and we've got uh, our honored guest tonight, Dr. Bill Warner, coming back for lesson four in our course on Islam that he has graciously agreed to do with us that I, I really appreciate. Um, and we're still getting questions about, you know, why would you be talking about a religion on a health show? Because on the surface, that seems like it's kind of off topic, right? But when, I, and it's interesting, when I, when I was first asked to do this show, you know, I, th I thought I'd be talking about raw food and juicing and fasting and um, all these interesting things. And we do. We talk about those, what are called the laws of nature that have been taught for thousands of years and more by the the real healing teachers that have known about this since before recorded history, and those are true, but, but there are more elements to health than just what you eat physically, okay, which most of our regular audience understands by now. But um, just to make it clear, if you eat the best possible diet that you can eat, and you're wishing, you know, destruction on everybody else and harboring hatred and condemnation of other people for the things that they've done wrong in their lives and not working primarily on yourself. I'm not talking to all of us, including me, you know, have the same things to learn. Then um, you're limiting what you can do with health. So it's not just physical. That there, There is not a sharp dividing line between physical and other levels in health. And so um, I'm going to answer this question about why why we have um, this series of shows with Dr. Warner on what appears to be a religious issue on a health show. So we're going to get to that answer. And I, it's, it's not just a, a one-sentence answer, so I, I need to explain it a little bit. Now, also I want to make sure that, that you know that this is number four installment in a series of ongoing um, classes on Islam and what it's really about, not somebody's opinion, not some scholar, you know, but the opinion of Muhammad and the word of Allah, which are the authorities on Islam, not somebody's interpretation. So the, the earlier episodes that we've done are, are um, first of all, Muhammad's life, which is really critical because there are three um, essential scriptures in Islam, the Quran, the Sirah and the Hadith. And you absolutely have to know all of them in order to understand the other ones. You have to be able to see how they all fit together, what the real sequence is of Muhammad's life, critical. Um, you know, so, so all these things have to be understood. And, and Dr. Warner has done the incredible service to humanity who wants to understand Islam and, and really study it that he's correlated all these things directly out of the original scriptures with references to every single verse that he's talking about and shows how they fit together and, and how they fit into the chronological progression of Muhammad's life, which is essential to the whole thing because Muhammad, according to Islam, is the perfect person, you know, who, who lived the perfect life and in devotion to Allah. And every Muslim who wants to do things correctly has to follow Muhammad and what Muhammad said. So the, our first installment was on Muhammad's life, and the second one was on history of Islam, and then the third was, one was on Sharia law, in other words, the kind of law that 
is supposed to be implemented all over the world and displace all the other forms of law, the U.S. Constitution, all the other legal systems in countries are supposed to be ultimately supplanted by Sharia law. That's the purpose, so that Islam will be the world religion and there won't be anybody who's not a Muslim. That is what Muhammad taught as one of the, the goals that everybody has to work for. So we're still getting questions. Um, you know, about how these things fit in. And to understand it, you need to know what health actually is. You know, is it the lack of pain in your life? Is it that going away? Or what is it exactly? You know, I mean, taking a painkiller does not necessarily make you healthy. In fact, it doesn't make you healthy at all. And if it's a synthetic drug painkiller, it probably hurts your liver and kidneys and poisons your body, which is not a brilliant plan. And even if it's a an herbal painkiller, you have to find out why the pain is there and get change the cause. But beyond the physical level, there are other parts of health like we we're talking about. There's there's a natural current, a life current that's keeping us all alive. It comes from our source, our ultimate source that people can call spiritual. It's really where life comes from. And that's why there's no division really between physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, they all have to be integrated together. Well, they are, actually are integrated together. It's just that our understanding has to match that so that we know what, what we need to do. And um, that current of vitality that's keeping us alive is, needs to move freely through our body. And when the impediments to it are taken away by our learning the laws of nature and then gradually learning to live them, getting over the psychological blocks that make that difficult, then there's a vitality and an energy and a natural immunity to infectious disease and even to all these man-made insults that are unleashed on us by our so-called rulers. That natural immunity, we, I don't even know what its ultimate potential is, but it's very strong. And it's fresh, and it, there's an ageless kind of energy and enthusiasm that's characteristic of children that should be there in adults, too. That's part of what being healthy is. It's like a natural joy from inside, not from what's going on around you, because that changes. Sometimes there's things you like, sometimes there's things you don't like, and you don't want to be on this permanent roller coaster. It doesn't feel good. So there's a, a natural source that we need to get in touch with, and you, it's a, it is what it is, no matter whether you call it the source or nature or God or spirit or whatever you want to call it, it doesn't change it. What matters is not the words, it's getting in touch with it and then letting it live through you. <clears throat> Excuse me. So to do that, it requires learning and then implementing the laws of nature that have been taught since before recorded history. You know, the physical ones are like understanding food, because that's a big connection to the physical world is what you eat. And every single little tiny thing that you eat and drink has an effect. Nothing is just haphazard here in this place that they call the real world. Everything has an effect. What you eat, it's like what you think and what you say and what you do. We all learn from that because we get the results of it. It's just the learning can be slow 
because the results aren't always instant, so it makes it really hard to sometimes associate and realize what the causes and the effects really were in your life that make you experience things, but were the origin of all the causes. And that's how we get our lessons. So on the physical level, what you eat and what you drink and the air you breathe and your exercise and your sleep and your sunlight exposure, which is absolutely essential, and grounding to the earth with bare skin, like walking barefoot in a safe place to do that. These are essential elements of physical health and you can't overlook any of them and get the best results. But then there's also the mental and emotional and spiritual aspects that are also essential. And what that comes down to is kindness to others and to yourself because you can't be nice to others if you're not nice to yourself. It's not possible. And, so, and service to um, yourself and other people, basically. And you ever heard of an old saying called, love your neighbor as yourself? You think about what that means. It's not just love your neighbor as if they were yourself, or as if you cared about them as much as you care about yourself. It's loving your neighbor because you understand they are yourself. And it's the same ultimate being, that same God in disguise, which there have been a lot of old stories about that, you know, God comes by looking like either somebody that you don't want to talk to or somebody that needs help or something like that. This God is not just occasionally in somebody in disguise. It's always in somebody in disguise, always in everybody that comes to you. So how you treat absolutely everybody, including those that are challenging for you to deal with is how you are treating that ultimate being, whatever you call it. And if you think you're somebody outside of that, that's not accurate. So it's how you treat yourself, and there's no, no big dividing line between selfishness and selflessness. It's only degrees of awareness. Because if you think that you can put yourself ahead by hurting other people, that doesn't work. And eventually we learn that. And then eventually, down the road of lessons, you find out that if you really want to be selfish in the true sense and help yourself, you just pour out everything you've got to help other people. Because it gets multiplied and it comes back. But it's not just because you get it back, it's because you develop empathy and you feel good when other people feel good. So you want more and more of it. So right now, one of the things that's affecting our health, everybody's health, is that there is this thing called terrorism going on in the world. It's being funded by our government and its allies and the global rulers and their plan that they think is really smart and subtle and sophisticated and you'll never figure it out, is that if they fund and support and promote terrorism, then you're going to get terrorized, right? And they're probably right about that. And that when you're terrorized, you say, oh, global rulers, please come and save us. That's pretty much their whole plan and with a bunch of other details. And right now they have chosen among other things, to use Islam to help them 
carry out that plan because if you get rid of all of the defensiveness about what religion is right or wrong and all this nonsense that people just want to show they're right, the original teachings of Muhammad and what he wrote down as the prophet of Allah, and I have to admit to Dr. Warner at some point, I, I think I have no reason to disbelieve that Muhammad was a prophet of Allah. He sounds like it to me because he's really saying, you know, what this angel is telling him that Allah wants, believes, etc. So it sounds like the prophet of Allah to me. But anyway, what Allah through Muhammad says to do, and this is detailed by Dr. Warner and referenced in every verse in the three scriptures of Islam, Allah wants people killed if they don't convert to Islam. Very simple. Except some of them you can turn into slaves, that's okay too. And Allah just flies into a rage and, and wants to torture and kill people that don't agree and don't convert, okay? Because Allah really has an extremely unstable temperament. And it's not only Islam that has described God this way. Many scriptures have jealous, angry, furious, hateful, vengeful, wanting suffering of the people that don't agree with them. You have to really think carefully if you want to follow that kind of temperament in your life. No matter what it's called. And in the Islamic scriptures, it's called God or Allah. And he hates, you know, people to the point of wanting to torture and kill them if they don't convert. And it says it's all right to steal their land, invade their country, enslave their uh, kids and women and make them sex slaves and kill the men because... The world has to be all Muslim. And, no, that's what it really says. It's not somebody's opinion. It's not something Dr. Warner made up. It's covered in the first lessons that we did so far. I've read all of his books, and, and they're very well referenced. They all go back to the original scriptures. So, if you want health, which is, remember, what this show is about, but if you're going to be honest about it, you can't take an... You not only can't do it with a drug, you can't do it with an herb either. And this is where some people misunderstand um, naturopathy. If you just substitute herb for drug, you don't get it. You know, that's not the natural approach to health. That's symptomatic medicine translated over to herbs. Hardly learning anything. So if you really want health on all levels then you can't obey anybody's program of terrorism, even if it's God himself. You know, if they want terrorism and destruction and death, it's just like, you know, John Lennon has some good lyrics in his songs, and he says, uh, what is it? And if you want money for people with minds that hate, all I can tell you is, buddy, you have to wait. In other words, whoever tells you to kill for God and love and justice and, you know, to make the world wonderful that you have to torture and kill people who don't agree with you, it's probably better if you don't become part of that. So originally, remember, in our earlier lessons, Muhammad was a businessman, and he was a really good one, and a very responsible, great citizen, um, just a good person from what it sounds like to me and uh, highly respected and then he ran into this angel or supernatural being 
which from my own experiences I and many other people, you know, these things are real. These individuals that are not in physical bodies are real. They can have any kind of temperament just like human beings can. They can be deceptive. They can be nasty. They can be really good. Anyway, he ran into this particular one that I guess he considered to be an angel and it was very impressive and it, it uh, told him that he was going to be not a businessman anymore. He's going to be the um, prophet of Allah, the last Jewish prophet and uh, bring a new religion up to the world, which is what Islam was. And um, so Muhammad was a very solid businessman and he's, his, he thought, well, the best thing to do here is commit suicide. It's not necessarily widely known, <clears throat> but that was his reaction. But um, he got stopped by the same angel who said, no, you really shouldn't do that. It's better if you just become the prophet and I've got work for you to do. And then his own, own family told him, yeah, you should be the prophet. You, you're a good person. And this angel is probably... Um, it must be Archangel Gabriel, so don't worry about it. It's going to be great. You'll be the prophet, and uh, just do your work. So, Muhammad had been living in this eclectic, tolerant society in Mecca, in Arabia, where they had all these religions that Dr. Warner's been telling us about earlier. And originally, the angel was giving him direction to be nice to the other followers of other religions and then but gradually gave him changing advice apparently because I have no reason to believe Muhammad wasn't just dutifully and responsibly following the direction of this angel and so he was told to get more and more aggressive and let the other ones know look you guys have the wrong belief systems your religions are all wrong so you're all going to hell um so, you know, what do you think about that? Think about if you, <clears throat> if you um, believe that you have the right religion, and most people do, and, uh, and if you believe other people who have the wrong religion are going to go to hell because they don't, what do you think your responsibility is? Do you need to find a way to force them to convert? Do you need to figure that they're all lost? And, well, they just have to go to hell. That's just how it is. Well, Muhammad was directed by the angel, apparently, to tell them, look, you guys are all going to hell, and you better convert. Your families are going to be in hell. I mean, your ancestors are going to be in hell. It's going to be really bad. And he started telling them in detail how bad hell was. And so they kicked him out of Mecca. And he went to friends in Medina, and he started a more and more aggressive version of what he was teaching and started robbing and killing the people that wouldn't convert and teaching that uh, Allah said, and he had to report honestly as the prophet, which I imagine it was totally honest, that Allah said anybody who doesn't convert has to die or certain ones of them, especially Jews and Christians, in some cases, especially the women and kids, could be made into slaves and sold. And you can have all their, when you kill the men, you can have all the property, take their houses and everything, their farms, their businesses. So it became a really profitable business, and that helped Muhammad recruit a lot of helpers and converts to Islam. And they were also taught, this is what Allah said through Muhammad, 
that you help kill all these non-believers and you're going to go to paradise as a result. So, you know, Dr. Warner is saying that this part about killing everybody and taking their stuff is political and praying and all that is religious. I guess I'm not as knowledgeable about this stuff as Dr. Warner is by any means. I'm a beginner, but from I've read all his books and the basic scriptures, and to me it looks like it's all religion. Because if the soldiers in jihad who were risking their lives to kill these non-believers, because some of them died, you know, they couldn't always kill everybody right away, then um, they had to have a reason to risk their lives, and the reason was they could go to paradise if they got killed. You know, maybe they wouldn't get paid, but at least they'd get all the rewards of paradise, which was eternal feasts, unending sex, lying around, you know, having a great life, at least what they thought of as great life. It wouldn't really appeal to me, but um, it was just decadence on the earth level multiplied by, you know, a million or something. So that was why they were willing to risk their lives to kill everybody. And to me, that's all religion. But that's kind of an academic point in a way. It worked. It was a brilliant plan on the part of Muhammad. It got him devoted warriors. So to answer the question of why we have religion issues on a health show, health requires a consciousness. It's not only what you eat. And you get that consciousness when you want it by degrees. And arrogance, complacency, things like that stop your growth. Getting to a place where you think you really got it down. The truth is, compared to what there is to know, we don't know anything. We're all base beginners. And we're just trying to get a little bit further. And right now, governments are using Islamic terrorism to destroy societies so that uh, people will demand world government to come and save them. Okay, that's their plan. And that's a big health issue. Uh, it's not healthy. Freedom is a direct requirement of optimum health. And, you know, you can't fall into negative programming no matter whether it's a religion or any other kind of belief system, and have ideal health. It does not work. You've got to stay open and positive, and uh, you've got to have some discretion, you know, in making your decisions. So, an interesting thing to think about is if an angel like Muhammad saw, or whatever you think would be the most impressive, fanciest, amazing angel, just appeared, you know, I don't know, in, in a big cloud or a pillar of fire or you know, lightning bolts or volcanoes, whatever you think would be the most impressive. If one of those angels or supernatural beings comes to you and they look really beautiful and they tell you to start killing those who don't agree with you because they don't matter and you've been chosen and the people who agree with you will be saved, all the others will go to hell, but that doesn't matter and you need to start killing right away, um, what would you do? And I mean, not the average person coming to you and saying that. I mean, somebody who looks incredibly impressive, supernatural, brilliant being of light. He says he's Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad or God and says to start killing or you're going to hell. What are you going to do? This was apparently what Muhammad had to decide like right on the spot. What if, he, what if this amazing being tells you to enslave or abuse women? or to keep sex slaves, or to steal for God and deceive, um, and to kill the ones who have the wrong beliefs. 
it's really worth thinking about and not starting to think, oh, those dumb people, I would have done much better. No. If you're in that situation, that is not an easy situation. So, health and consciousness are inseparable. And uh, that's why issues of consciousness, especially belief systems and programming, particularly when they're being used to destroy whole societies of which we are part, that's why it has to be looked at on a health show. If they were just keeping, if ISIS, for example, was just holding their own ceremonies and beheading each other and stuff like that by mutual consent, that would be their business. I really believe in freedom. But what they're doing is not mutual consent. They have victims. And that's when it becomes a health issue. So, with all that as kind of a, um, you know, preview, let's go talk to Dr. Warner. I've got some really important things to ask him about. And when we do, please appreciate the courage that he has to teach the real details of Islam right out of the original sources and to correlate it and make it accessible to anybody. This is not something that most people would be willing to do because it's highly politically incorrect. It's physically dangerous for his life, uh, which we may talk to him about too. And think about why it matters for you to understand this issue to begin with. Why, why you need to know anything about Islam in, in the world today. You know, strangely enough, this is something I agree with our rulers on. They want to have Islam taught in elementary school and all these other things in America. I kind of agree, but not the way they're doing it. I think all of us should be taught the truth about any belief system, not just Islam, but vaccinism and scientism and geoengineeringism and anything else that you're just supposed to believe in without questioning it. So let's go talk to Dr. Warner, and I've got some stuff to tell you after that. Hi, everybody. This is Richard Sachs. We're here with our friend Dr. Bill Warner, and I think this is like our fourth lesson in Islam, which he's graciously allowed to share with us, so that since Islam has become such a huge issue in the world today, it seems incumbent on all of us to know as much as we can about it, not just um, in terms of prejudice, which means deciding before you know what's going on with something, and we don't want to do that. So, um, it takes some education and uh, time, but in talking with Dr. Warner, we're able to save maybe like 98% of the time it takes to get an understanding because instead of uh, starting with reading all of the the scriptures and the books he's written about them, we're talking with the author of one of the best commentaries that correlates the three major Islamic scriptures, uh, uses reference to all the original uh, verses in all three books and allows you to really get a context and understand the details of what's happening quickly. So I think that's of incredible value, and that's why we we'll want to uh, do this complete series of lessons on it. Uh, welcome, Dr. Warner, and thank you for the time. I really appreciate it very much. Glad to be here. As a teacher, I always enjoy seeing students. And although I yes. can't see you, there are students out there. Yeah, they're definitely out there, and um, I'm sure this is going to impact a lot of them. So um in in uh, sequence after the uh, last lesson that we did, which was on Sharia law, I thought it, it would make sense and and I think that you would agree with this that we go from Sharia law in general to one of the biggest subjects that's in Sharia law. In other words, where uh, 
where women fit into culture and society and everyday life and um, you know all the values connected with that and the behavioral instruction since Muhammad is uh, portrayed as as the ideal that all the men should uh, aim for we want to go over clearly what the women you know should do how they should live and how to be the perfect Muslim if you're a woman and everything connected with that so um, where do you think would be a, a logical place to start because you know infinitely more about this than I do well I'll tell you what let's start with the fact that there are three books that give us the doctrine of Islam you've mentioned the Quran the Sirah the biography of Muhammad and the Hadith the traditions okay. of Muhammad now, something about the books before we get to women that leaps off the page at you, particularly if you've read a lot of spiritual and religious scriptures, is how Islam never sees a unified universe. That's almost a contradiction, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Islam mm-hmm. always sees things divided up. It's a dualistic system. And one of the divisions that you see, the primary division in the Quran, is between the kafir, the non-Muslim, K-A-F-I-R, and the mm-hmm. believer, Okay, But when you see that, there is no humanity inside of the Quran, which is perhaps the chief criticism I have of it. Instead, it divides. And one of the ways it divides, I've already mentioned the believer and the non-believer, but another equal division is that of the woman. Women mm-hmm. are specified many times and given as examples of what is not to be done or to be done in Islam. Okay. And women even occur in a strange way and I say in a strange way because if you're used to the Christian concept of heaven, there's no special allotment for men and women. That is, Christians don't have the concept of women going to heaven being different from men going to heaven. But the even paradise is sexually parsed, if you will, in that there's a great deal of attention given to a man and what he'll do in heaven, or paradise as they call it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with women. We, the infamous 72 virgins, which, by the way, the, the number 72 does not appear in the Quran, but there are 72, there are virgins in the plural, and they're called huris, H-O-U-R-I-S. Okay. So, even in heaven, we see that the men have a lot of huris, but the women, they just have their original husband. So, yeah, I was wondering about that when when I was reading it in your books and and in the original scriptures. It, it's almost like they're assuming the whole reading audience is men. Yes, in what they're describing, right? Yes, I mean, uh, Muhammad had the idea of the Playboy Club long before Hugh Hefner. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I should have thought of that. It really sounds like it. A little bit different clothing, but you know, same idea. It's it's totally the same idea. So, even in heaven, we see that there's a division between men and women. There's one hadith, a tradition of Muhammad, in which it is stated that the woman will be situated far enough from her husband. There's some, I think it gives it in terms of how far a horse can ride in a day. So that even in heaven, the Muslim male is still freed from the encumbrances of demands of his wife. So, but, but anyway, that's just, I thought we'd start off with women in heaven and they don't seem to get uh, 72 virile males or whatever it is that... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh by, oh, by the way, there's something interesting about the Huris, which is very important in insight into women. 
Okay. First off, they're virgins, which means they know nothing. They're totally dependent upon the man for knowledge, and they okay. avert their gaze. They do not see, look at the man in the eye because that would be a position of equality. Oh, okay, got it. Now, uh, well, since you mentioned that, first thing I wondered about the Huris, too, is that are they actually people, or are they supernatural spirits that never came to Earth? And if they are people who used to live in physical bodies, how does this that first, This is the first time I've heard this question, but I think from the construct that the Huris are specially created, delectable playmates for the Muslim male, created for the special purpose of serving his eternal sexual pleasure in heaven. Sounds like virtual reality almost. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm supposed to ask more normal questions, but that's just I like that. <laughs> I never thought about that. <laughs> um, okay. I guess maybe, it doesn't get into I, it that much. I, I, I guess that there's, you know, we live in a age which they're contemplating robots. Uh, that I see where there's now they're contemplating what sexual robots would be, or I guess. I, I'm not sure, microprocessors, sex like. I, I mean, critics of that have said that, well, if everybody's all wrapped up in virtual reality, like, you know, some of the people say the founder of Facebook and other people are driving us toward so that they can be in control and have reality left for themselves, then um, this is kind of a version of that that happened before, you know, there weren't too many computers in the normal sense when Muhammad was around. <laughs> But anyway, we do, the, yeah. back to the subject of women. We do see yeah. that women are, are separate from men. And there is a big, and they're separated even at the mosque, by the way. Uh, the woman okay. is, sets in the back of the room, or I've been in mosques in which they set over on the right-hand side of the room. Okay, okay. Interesting. So, so the men Actually, all in some sit- mosques, there are, there are special doors for the women to come and go in. Okay, wow. That's really interesting. So now, and you're talking about in paradise, the women are separated, the wives are separated, but not the huris, obviously. Right? No, the, I think the huris are always at your beck and call. There's a, they're 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 all as sex slaves, is what they are. So is it realistic to say that only the wives are separated? Well, there's that hadith which says that they're separated from the man and his from the man and his harem. I mean, he can still go visit her, mind you, but. I mean, I was just struck with what appeared to me to be the inequality. And Richard, let me express my peculiar bias on the subject of women. I was raised by my mother and my grandmother. I have two daughters, married to the same woman for 53 years. I have granddaughters. I am, I'm just sort of in terms of establishing all of our biases, I am very pro-woman. Okay, so this is like a full disclosure, disclaimer statement. It's a full disclosure. I am all for the equality of women. And uh, I love women in all forms, old, young, babies, child, children. I mean, yeah. so some of, this, some of this material about women to me is like fingernails on the blackboard of my life. Yeah, yeah. You're not going through these details enjoying having to say them. It's just this is education. Yes. But I think it's a very important education. And one of the reasons is, is that the apologists for Islam surround us and occupy high places, in particular in the universities, and even in seminaries, but even those who are, quote, pro-Islam or friends of Islam or who have this Muslim friend and he's their best friend and stuff, there is, even amongst those who are pro-Islam, there's a slight wincing when we come to the subject of women because the way women are treated has even bled out into the common culture. 
That is, a lot of the things we're going to cover here are not secrets. They're already kind of mm. well-known. I mean, okay. e- so anyway, I just want to put that out there. Well, like, what, what do you mean by that? And what's an example? An example of... Uh, stuff, that's, stuff that's well-known oh. that's bled out into the common culture. And, well, and how, about the, how about the burqa? Okay. How about the concept of sex slaves? All right. Well, if you start if you start with the burqa, where where did that come from? Was there anything like it before Islam? Well, I'm sure there was. In that, one of the things, if I deal with Muslims, I always start off with this fact: I am a kafir. I do not believe that the Quran is a sacred text. I believe it is a derivative text, and I do not believe that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. Notice what I call the Quran: it is a derivative text, because if you've studied scriptures of all mm-hmm. religions, you realize that part of the Quran comes from uh, Judaism, part of it comes from Christianity, part of it comes from Zoroasterism, and part of it mm-hmm. comes from the paganism that was present when Muhammad was alive. So I'm sure that there was some mode of covering up and veiling of women. I say that because that's just a hunch. Mm-hmm. I haven't mm-hmm. really researched that, but everything else I find comes from somewhere else, and so why not that? Now, the restrictions on the hijab, or the, which is the head, let's establish the hijab is the head covering, a scarf of some sort, and the niqab uh-huh. is a face covering, and the burqa is a full gown which covers the face as well. Okay, so the burqa includes the other two. Yes. Okay. As a matter of fact, the uh, burqa is on the cover of my new cover of the Islamic Doctrine of Women. Okay. So, the... What is the Quran is explicit about is is that the wives of Muhammad should cover themselves and be behind a veil. That is, if you visited Muhammad's apartment, there was a veil or a screen up so that they could be behind the screen or behind the hung. It's like a curtain. Okay. Now, that is indicated, but nowhere is there. It's women. Islamic women are enjoined to be uh, modest, but nowhere is there a command for them to wear the any special clothing. But what, of course, the Muslims argue is, well, if Muhammad's wives do it, we want to be as good as they are. Okay, did did it say exactly what Muhammad's wives were supposed to wear? You know, I'm not recalling that, so I won't say. Okay. I'm recalling the exact quote. Okay, so I wonder when the common custom happened that all Muslim women had to wear, you know, burqas or something in that direction. That's not clear. That's not clear. We have photographs of Muslim women during the days of colonialism, and they were indistinguishable from anybody else. The clothing is a mark of civilizational jihad, I call it, in that I say that the hijab marks the person as the one who is submitting to the Sharia. And that's my problem with the hijab, is not the cloth on the head, because I certainly don't have a negative reaction when I see Mennonite women with a head covering or some orthodox women that doesn't bother me it's not the head covering what bothers me is what the head covering is symbolic of and i Mm, find that the hijab is a sign of sharia compliance and richard why do i object to sharia because i am called a kafir and a demi in the sharia and it said that i should be subjugated so therefore i see the hijab in the same way that a black person sees a ku klux klan white gown there's and the white robe in itself is why well, I mean it's just a robe. But okay, it's but, the political but, system it's a sign of that I object to. But the women who are forced in certain cultures to wear that 
are not the Kafirs. They're Muslim women. That's exactly right. Now, what I what what makes me wince is when our back when Secretary of State was Hillary Clinton, she would put on a hijab to go visit Muslims. Now I'm now this is my peculiar politics. I say, why not? I'm all for diversity. They may want to cover their women's heads, but why should Kafir women have to wear their heads covered just because they're covering theirs? But I'm somewhat of an extremist on these issues. Yeah, obviously, conspiracy theory person. So. <laughs> all right. Um, well, huh. all right. So where were you going from from the idea of the burqas? Well, it's just that they're called out for special clothing. And that's, okay. that's my problem with it, is that I see constantly that women are pulled out and held separate and apart. So, okay. and... Well, let me let, well, this. This could be the end, but let me start off with the beginning. Actually, um, there are the Quran is never consistent. It's always has different views. There are views in the Quran in which elevate the woman. Uh, if she is a mother, she's held as the supreme example of humanity. That is, as a mother. But the it is ironic. But Islam says they were the first to give women their rights. Well, one of the rights of a woman is to be subjugated by the male. So okay. I think we need to we need to understand that the Islamic doctrine takes and we can put women in, in three categories: inferior, equal, and superior. The only way that women are superior is when they have um, when they're a mother. They're equal okay. only on one context, and that is on Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, women and men will be judged on the capacity of what they did. But okay. one of the things is, is that the women will be judged in the part of their equality and how well they obeyed their husbands. Okay. So it seems like, I mean, I'd like to get your opinion on this, but it, it seems like a lot of this comes out of the foundational assumption that if men are off balance and out of control sexually, it's the fault of the woman. And yes. so, rather than even looking at the man's behavior, you've got to do more and more to the woman until it's okay. Well, for instance, even the supposedly the reason that Islamic women are covered, and by the way, I have no objection to modesty. Let's let's get that straight. Right, right. Um, but their covering is because they're too great a temptation for the male. If a woman gets raped, it is her fault. She yeah. was the attractive object. If she had not been attractive, the man would have never raped her. Yeah. And so that's part of the concept of what I call the black bag. Now, here's the thing. I've spoken with women who live in the East, and they say that even when you put the face mask on, the niqab, and the black garb on, you will still get your backside squeezed on the uh, bus. You'll still get men pressing up against you in a crowd. You'll still get people, men grabbing for their breasts. As okay. a matter of fact, I've seen videos put together of women who are as covered as you can get, gloves and everything, right. and they still, men are grabbing at them. So, but, well, it kind of makes sense because it takes all the responsibility off the men for behavior. Yes, it does. And it also produces very peculiar men. There are Afghan males who have never seen a woman other than their relatives. Right, right. Now, think about that. They've never seen women except for their relatives, whom they can't marry. This yeah. produces a male whose sexuality is bound to get kind of warped and twisted as he grows up. I mean, right. I cannot imagine what it would be like to never see women. 
except, of course, behind a, a burqa. Well, then you're seeing a burqa, basically. You're seeing a burqa, you know. I don't, and I yeah. wouldn't look too close, by the way. Right, right. Interesting. Wow. And, okay, so do you know much about how, you know, the culture that this arose in the midst of when Muhammad, before Muhammad had his revelation and became the official prophet of Islam, um, the society that he was living in was a kind of a um, eclectic uh, Arab society where there are all kinds of different religions and gods and everybody was more or less getting along. And probably part of the reason they were getting along was they had a lot of, a lot of beliefs in common in the yes. old uh, multiple religions. Yes. So, do we know anything about how, as a baseline, how women were thought of and treated before Islam Excellent in that area? Question. Excellent question. And the, and the Sirah, the biography of Muhammad, gives us a clue into this. Now, what the Muslims like to say is, is before Islam came along, female babies were killed. They were buried alive because they were unwanted. And so Muhammad prohibits this. And so they give this example as an advancement in the rights of women. And by the way, I, I applaud them for that. I don't have any yeah. problem with not killing female babies. Right. But these, were, these, were, these killings were done usually in times of starvation. But let's examine uh, Muhammad had a wife. And we know a great deal about her. Her name was Khadija. Khadija mm -hmm. was an independent businesswoman. She invited Mar Muhammad to the marriage. As a matter of fact, Muhammad started out being her foreman. He invited, yeah, she Mo invited Muhammad him. was not a prophet or a Muslim at that point, right? You're talking no, no, about no. He was, just, he was just another guy. And yeah. she used him as a uh, manager for her caravans. Okay. So she invited him to marry her. So we learned something from here that the before Islam, women were independent, even in subject of marriage. So okay. the what is portrayed there. Oh, and by the way, uh, as a woman, she was the first one to tell Muhammad that he was the prophet of Allah. So wow, his that, relationship that puts with this, her in a really interesting position, doesn't it? Yes, it does. She brought in Islam in a way. Yes, she did. Right? Because when he had his first revelations, he was like, I must be crazy. As a matter of fact, yeah. he thought of committing suicide. And right. so he went to and talked to his wife, and she did. She said, no, 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 you're a good man. This is not Satan. This is an angel of God. And then she mm -hmm. went and got her cousin, Waraka, who came and told Muhammad, ah, this is the same archangel that spoke to Moses and David. You're, you're, the, you're a prophet of God. Okay. And this was a Christian who told him this. Okay. So, Interesting. Wow. Wow, okay. So so a Christian made sure that the Islam religion would start. A bitter irony. Interesting, huh? Okay. So you're you're going through what clues we have of what life was like and then for women too before Islam started. Yes. And although Islam says they were the first to give women their rights. And I'm not sure why they say that, but I'm just telling you what they Muslims say. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and I say, well, you know, they gave women a lot of rights. For instance, they gave the right of Kafir women to be raped as sex slaves. So mm -hmm. that's the right they were given. They gave the Muslim woman the right to be part of a harem. They gave right. the Muslim woman the right to be married when she was nine years old. They okay. gave the Muslim woman the right to be beaten. Okay. So because it's very explicit. As a matter of fact, I believe that I have a whole chapter on wife-beating in the, my book on Islam. 
Yeah, you do. Hmm. Okay. So not all rights are ones that you necessarily want. I mean, uh, no, I don't want. I don't want the right to be beaten. Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> getting turned down for harem application might not be all bad. <laughs> so. Okay, and so Khadija was very independent. She was well off, successful. She had money. She mm -hmm. decided who she was going to marry, and uh, she was actually Muhammad's boss. Yes, she was actually his boss at one time. Now then, once he becomes the prophet of Allah, things begin to change. Now, he later had a harem of some, the number's uncertain, but around 11 wives and numerous sex slaves. Yeah, actually, before you go on from there, that's one point that really kind of confused me because I thought that Muhammad was supposed to be the absolute perfect model for life, and yet, aren't you restricted to only four wives now as a Muslim? Yes, but Muhammad, there's a verse in the Quran in which it states, I forget, I think it grants him access to his former daughter-in-law. Uh, yeah. there, there's a whole story there. But it goes ahead to say that only Muhammad can have this many wives. The ordinary man oh. can have one, two, three, or four wives. Okay. Now, having lived with one woman for 53 years, I do not know why a man would want to live with four women. Or, or two. I mean, that's, I know that's just, you know, a judgment that each person has to feel differently about. But I agree, one, one person's enough if you really, you know, are willing to... Get to know them. I don't think you'd have time to do more than one. But well, the thing is, is there's a, there was a chapter that sprung out of my work on women that I did not know would be there. Uh, I knew I was going to have section section on uh, sex and wife beating and that kind of thing. But yeah. what surprised me was when I put all the hadith, the traditions together, was how much jealousy there was in the harem. Right. Now, this was a surprise to me, because if Muhammad is the perfect husband, you would think that he could have a complete harmony within his own harem. After all, he is lord and master of the harem, and yeah. so if there's jealousy, that means that they're not being treated fairly. And by well, the way, that's, that's, a, that's maybe a Western point of view, you know. I mean, if, if I'm understanding what, what you're saying was the mentality, it actually was probably showing a defect in the perfection of the wife's understanding. Well, I'm sure it got all blamed off on them, but nevertheless, there were many times in which there was jealousy. One of his huh. sex slaves, Miriam, who was a fair-skinned with wavy hair Christian sex slave, she mm -hmm. caused jealousy in the harem. So right. there's also the the, uh, the women divided up into two sets of wives, and they plotted and schemed with each other in order to have more favors from the husband. I heard a... a uh, Suppose it's some wisdom from Islam about wives. Either have one or four. If you have two, they'll, be, they'll always be contentious with each other and jealous of each other. If you have three, two will gang up on the third. And if you have four, they'll divide into two and two. They'll have company as well as, uh, uh, as, well as being able to support the jealousy of the harem. So right. I've never tried that advice, but that's just some advice I've heard uh -huh. given. Well, you mentioned female sex slaves. So what's the difference between their real rights in life compared to wives? Well, slaves are supposed to be treated well. Now, how you get together, as a matter of fact, Islam says proudly that in slavery in Islam was almost better than anything else because you were well-clothed, well-fed, but of course you were still a slave. Mm -hmm. But uh, a sex slave, I'm not sure where he, there's any advantage to being a sex slave, although 
in Muhammad's harem, he had sex slaves. A Jewish sex slave uh, is one that immediately comes to mind. A Christian sex slave. And uh, he had an Arab sex slave. Hmm, I never thought about that. So he covered all the bases. Right. Yeah. Um, it, I, I'm just not seeing immediately where the wives would really have a lot of superior position to the sex slaves, from what you said so far. Well, in rank, they do. Because you could still be a Kafir and be a sex slave. You could still be a Jew and be a sex slave or still be a I Christian. See. So okay. they have. But, of course, now the only way to be, lose your slave status is to become a Muslim. Then you right. can be freed. And uh, But anyway, sex slaves, it's, you know, you've seen pictures of sex slaves, but you didn't, you weren't realizing and thinking of them as sex slaves. Surely you've seen the uh, paintings in the days before Playboy. Uh, they were mildly erotic paintings because you'd have these women lounging around in daphnous gowns and they're sort of lolling about on the beds and big cushions. And these are parts of the harem. But we have to understand that all the members of this harem were sex slaves at some time or another. And so these are Jews and Christians and Yazidis who were uh, in the harem. And so we draw a beautiful picture of it as though being in the harem as a sex slave is romantic. Well, it's not. You are a slave and your purpose is to produce sexual gratification. And you okay, can be disposed you, of like a used... But you don't have to wear a burqa as long as you're hiding in the in the harem room or wherever they're kept. Yes, but don't forget this. You will not get to go out very often at all. The harem is secluded and you will spend most of your time there. Okay. Okay. All right. So, um, so in, in looking at those clues of, of how women were treated and their status in society and all that before Islam started... Khadija is pretty much the best uh, clue to that, right? Yeah, Khadija, uh, as a matter of fact, does not, since she was pre-Islam, uh, she does not present a bad case of marriage in the Arab world before Muhammad establishes new rules. So, Okay, hmm. interesting. And there were a lot of different religions, even in Mecca, where yes. Muhammad was, right? Now, these were... These were Religions than which there were many local gods. That is, in the days of Muhammad, different regions had different gods. So there could be this particular mountain would have its own sacred figure that was associated with it. Mm -hmm. Polytheism, which is what it was, now it was not a structured polytheism. In the, in the Greeks and Romans, they had a structure. You had, I think, Zeus was the boss or Jupiter was the boss. And there was a hierarchy. It was not hierarchical. But there mm -hmm. were many different kinds of religion. And polytheism produces tolerance. I mean, a woman would marry mm -hmm. a man and she would bring her religion along with her. And it was So like, that means like, the, the man used to convert before Islam in that same area of Arabia? No, no, no. They wouldn't need to convert. There was no need to convert from any religion to another. You oh, could have oh, as well. Okay, the man and woman would, could have different religions. Yes. You had different religions, different altars, or different shrines, or different. Uh, objects of devotion uh, uh -huh. so no they were uh, but it, it just produces a natural tolerance okay okay because so, there's not a claim of exclusivity when, when Muhammad started preaching the religion of Islam what the Muslims of what the 
Mackens objected to was not that he was preaching about a new religion. It was said there were 360 religions in Mecca. So what's 361? What's to worry about? You know, I mean, it's like yeah, one yeah. more, whatever. Exactly. But what he did was all the other 360 religions, their religion was okay and your religion was okay. But when Muhammad came along, his religion was okay, but yours was not. As a matter of fact, he explicitly told the Meccans that their ancestors were burning in hell because they weren't Muslims. Okay, uh, so out of all 360 pleasant. religions, as far as we know, all those 360 religions were saying, were not saying that you're going to hell because you have the wrong religion. Exactly. Precisely. They were very tolerant. I see. Okay. Wow. Um, okay, now, one thing that occurred to me when I was reading the books is that, um, yeah, Khadija looked like an example of a really, you know, um, free, successful woman in pre-Islamic society there. But I also saw some references that looked like they had female sexual mutilation before Islam. Is that uh, true? Disgusting. Yes, it existed beforehand. Uh, it is said that Khadija, not Khadija, sure is not mentioned. Uh, Muhammad's favorite wife was the girl he married when she was six and consummated when she was nine. Her name is Aisha. Right. And there are, is an indication from Aisha after Islam is a religion that has pure, a lot of purity laws, so much like the Cherokee Indians did and the Jews have. Things are clean and unclean. There's food that's clean and unclean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the woman can be unclean if she's having her period. Well, that's right, right. true of Orthodox, and it's also true of Islam. Yeah, there's a lot in the Bible about that, actually. So, which always puzzle me, by the way. And and, and but where, now, where were we go? Where were we going with uncleanliness? I, for well, I was. I, yeah, I mean, you brought that up, but it, my question before that was about female sexual mutilation ah. before before Islam. Yes, yes. So since. Uh, Aisha was circumcised before she was married, or at least we presume that's when it happened, because she mentioned the circumcised parts of when they touch. Oh, I know where we were going with this. And after sex, it makes you unclean, and so you need to take a ritual purity bath. That's where I was going with that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so she mentioned, so the question is, how sex do you have to, how, much, how deep into sex do you have to get before you bathe with have the purity bath? Before you're, says, before you're dirty, in other words. It's before you're dirty. And yeah. it is when the, her reply was, when the circumcised parts touch. So that would imply that she was circumcised as well as Muhammad. But now, the, okay. to use the term circumcision for male circumcision as opposed to female circumcision, these are very, very different operations. It's really misleading, yeah. It's quite misleading. Uh, I know of an operating room nurse who saw her first female genital mutilation or clitorectomy uh, in, the, in the surgery room, and she said all the nurses were horrified. The woman is unconscious, yeah. and so they were sort of examining her, and they were just like... Oh, you mean they, like, they, they didn't see it being done. They saw the results. No, no, no. They saw the results of it on a, on a woman who was yeah. uh, in for surgery. And they were okay. horrified at the mutilation. Yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, out of all the strangeness in Islam with regards to women... Sexual mutilation to me is the strangest. Now, this is a personal judgment on my part. Yeah. But, I mean, to me, it's the, it's the most like, what, are you crazy? I mean, I just, uh, I don't Do get it. Do we have it. any idea wh where it, when it started or why? Well, we know it was existing in Muhammad's day, and he did not condemn it. 
He said it was a yeah. good thing, but he did not say it was a mandatory thing. Okay, okay, okay. So, but anyway, the purpose of it is very easily seen. Remember this, the woman is the cause of sexual infidelity. So if the right. woman does not have any sexual urge, she's not going to be sniffing around outside the house. Okay, okay. So there is a purpose in the sexual mutilation, which is to subjugate the woman so that she won't wonder because a man's honor and shame are tied up in how his women are. If a girl, if his daughter is flirtatious, flirtatious or obviously sexy in a way that can be seen in the community, it is not her shame. It is the man's and, the, and his son's shame. So you're so actually preventing a lot of cases of rape with sexual mutilation, right? Yes. They're not going to be around trying to score sex. So yeah. the purpose is a subjugation. But that is the purpose of the doctrine found in Islam anyway, is to subjugate the woman. Going back originally, when I started off, I said women can be superior as a mother. They can be equal on Judgment Day. But in every other way, they're told what to do and how to do it. So yeah. the woman is, 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 there's a hierarchy, and she is to be subjugated. And the female mental, and FGM as they call it, female genital mutilation, is part of the subjugation. Okay. So it's really interesting that there were both of those elements. There was that and also the elements of independence and freedom that yes. you could see in Khadija's life. Yes. Both happening simultaneously pre-Islam. Yes, I never thought about that, but you're quite right. Both, both of them are present. Okay, okay. Huh. So, yeah, it, it really makes me wonder what was it, you know, since it was not Islam that was responsible for the mutilation uh, practice, I wonder, I mean, I'm not saying we have an answer at all for this. Well, the earliest, the earliest historical records are that it started in Egypt. Oh. oh. But, of course, Arabia okay. is right next to Egypt. Yeah. It started, it, it started in Egypt. And, again, I presume the object is, is to control uh, the sexuality of the woman so she won't be shopping around. Of course, right. my mind goes to the fact that she also wouldn't be much fun in bed. Well, yeah, I guess it was a matter of priorities, but it's just a, <laughs> a really strange, um, strange practice. I mean, from today's point of view, it seems like it. So, okay, so, so if you look at it, I mean, one way to see what happened to the rights of women and, and what was seen as rights, like you were listing the rights to be in a harem and things like that, um, when, when you look at it as an evolution of, of society from pre-Islam into Islam, there must have been a succession where the status of women was gradually changing as Islam progressed. Actually, when you read the Quran in its correct order, uh, a sidebar here, the Quran you get at the bookstore is not in the correct order. It's in the order of the longest chapter going to the shortest chapter. If you lay the Quran chapters out in the time sequence that they occurred, and by the way, this is no dark secret, you discover that the woman's rights are most limited in Medina. Remember, in Mecca, where Muhammad first was, he, had a, he was married to Khadija, who was an ordinary monogamous marriage. It was only when he went to Medina that all the ruinous rules started coming out about women, mm. whether it's about the veil okay. uh, or multiple marriage or uh, anything else that the... The Sharia about women really mostly came about in Medina, not in Mecca. And here we have, once again, the dual nature of Islam. 
you can quote from Mecca and have one Islam, and you can quote from Medina and you have another Islam. I usually state it that Islam is the religion of peace in Mecca and the politics of jihad in Medina, and they're both equally real. But there's a lot, there's a lot more Sharia rules about women. And by the way, the oddest one to me of all, I've mentioned I've been married to a woman, had two daughters, but the, so therefore I'm a, and Joan best breastfed both children. The th- most bizarre thing to me is is that in Islam and it's in the Quran, it is the male who determines when the woman will wean the baby. Okay. okay. Now to me, right. Richard, that's like what? <laughs> who, right. Why would a man be in charge of when you nurse when you wean the baby? I mean, to me, that's just like. What what does a man know about that anyway? That's right. I, I mean, I'm just expressing my own amazement because I never it, once it had is. any instinct. I, I had a similar reaction when I read that in your book, and I was thinking the only reason I can think for it is to, for the man to establish there's no doubt that he's in charge of everything. It seems to be, but I mean, it's it's like <sighs> I would hope he would at least ask before he told her to stop. <laughs> It's like, who would know more about about giving this order? What do you think? What do you think? I mean, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, it's just like, who would know better when the baby and nursing than the woman? I mean, I just never had the thought that this ought to be under the purvey of men. But this is just a personal reaction. Maybe Muslim women think that this is the way it's to be done. I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, that's another interesting aspect to the whole thing. And uh, when we had Inez as a guest on our show and and some others that I've talked to, they were saying, well, some Muslim women, it never occurs to them that there's anything wrong with this system. It's not like they're all just dying to get out of it. Some of them have completely, um, you know, harmonized with it. And I think that's an amazing psychological um, phenomenon, kind of like a, a specialized form of Stockholm Syndrome or something like that. I agree with you. Muhammad's great genius, and we have to admit the fact that he was a genius, a great yeah. genius was understanding that there was, what I call it, in humanity there is a beta gene. There are many people who are perfectly content to be told what to do and when to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another bunch of people like myself, but I'm sort of bizarre. I'm the male that stands up and will not be driven down. There aren't a lot of people like that, but there are people who are very content and by the way, let me talk about this. Sometimes people ask me, why would anybody become a Muslim? And I say, well, let's consider the fact that you're an American woman and that you are looking at becoming a Muslim. What are the advantages? Number one, you will be able to find a husband because mm-hmm. every Muslim male is supposed to have a wife. You will have a male who's not supposed to cheat and run around on you. You will also have a male who uh, is commanded to earn enough money and bring it home for you to live on. So there are some advantages, and also with Islam, you get a male who is expecting to be dominant. Now, I bring this up because in today's world, now this is personal opinion, there are many many men who are not what I would call very manly men. They're they're somewhat deferential, they're sensitive, and there's nothing wrong with being sensitive. But the point is, is that there are many men today who are not what I call super masculine. Mm -hmm. However, the Muslim male is... So therefore, they have an advantage when she's looking around for a mate because there are many women who are attracted to a dominating masculine male. So there are advantages for the woman. And by the way, if you're a black woman, this applies because I don't think I'm breaking any new news here. 70% of all children are born into a black household that don't have a father. Well, 
if you become a if you're a black woman and you become a Muslim, you will get a husband. Mm-hmm. So there, I want to in this hierarchy of who's the boss, the patriarch. There are some aspects of patriarchy which some women find attractive. Right. Well, you know, the same question and principle could apply to the women and the men, really, because there are different kinds of uh, impulses that humans seem to have. You know, some of them are are to be submissive because it takes responsibility off of you to to potentially make a decision and fail if you can just there's that depend depend on somebody else. But the men have the same thing because when you're when you get into Islam and you're a man, everything is prescribed. Mm-hmm. Right? You really don't have to decide what kind of philosophy or life to have. What, would Muhammad, what did Muhammad do? What did he do? Yeah, exactly. Right. That's the criteria. What did Muhammad do? Well, he did this, so therefore I should do that. Yeah. It's what I call a database religion. That is, what should I do? Well, you go look it up. You don't have to figure mm-hmm. it out. It's not a thought right. process you deal in. You just go, it's, it's tabulated. Right. Well, as you've pointed out, this is very comforting <clears throat> to some people because in today's world, it's kind of anti-authoritarian and it's loosey-goosey. Well, there are people who don't prosper well under that. They need some, they need order in their life. It used to be it, It's that, not just loose, it's totally insecure. Yes. You know, there's all kinds of disasters from making the wrong decision. And if it's not up to you, you don't have any of that to worry about. Exactly. I've seen cases in which men, young teenage men, were headed off on a life of crime, and they were mm-hmm. given the choice of going to jail or going to the military. They went to the military, and mm-hmm. it straightened their lives out because they were told when to get up, told how to make a bed, told what to eat, when to eat, do this, do yeah. that. And it was good for them. Right. That is, it gave right. them structure. I've seen the same thing over and over again. And, and, and sometimes if they don't grow beyond that stage, getting out of the military is pretty traumatic. Well, now there is that. I mean, I would say that you need to be able to be do both. You need to be able to do what you're told, but you also need to be able to do it the way you see it's right and to make your own independent decisions. But the important thing here is, is that there are a lot of people who respond well to the shut up and do it like this. And there's don't talk back and don't ask about uh, one of my least favorite verses in the Quran. And I have several least favorite verses. But one of them, my least favorite ones is the one in which it says, do not ask difficult questions. Yeah. Whoa, man, those are the only questions you want to ask. (laughs) Yeah, there's a different approach. But, you know, when you're looking at this from kind of, I guess, a a foundational point of view of the American idea of freedom as it's ideally supposed to be anyway, not as it's run now in our country, but the idea of how America was founded, um, it seems like if women or men want to live in a system where everything is prescribed, it's absolutely their right, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's only when they start saying that every, like Muhammad in Mecca, was starting to say that if you don't do the same thing I'm doing, then by the way, I just want to let you know you're going to hell, and so is your family, and you know, then start to push it. That's when it gets difficult. No, it does. I mean, if you, I've seen relationships which were quite happy, in which the male was very dominant, the woman was not dominant at all, and it worked. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, it's it's just that if you're a woman, you're not supposed to have any real choice about that. 
Yeah, the lack of choice is where it gets different. That, that, that to me is the problem. If you don't want to leave the house, if you have your own self-induced agoraphobia and you're happy with that, mm-hmm. fine, I don't care. Sure. But when you're told you have to stay in the house, that's where I have the problem. So that's where it changed in Mecca, where Muhammad started saying, you guys have to all change and give up your beliefs and throw away your gods and all that. Right. And that was the beginning of the end for Muhammad. Now, it took a while. Uh, he was One of the things that Muhammad had, and we need to understand this, is he never quit. It never got tough enough for him to stop doing it. So right. he persisted in what he was doing, and I, he got driven out of town. But instead of him losing with that, by the way, you could teach a whole training course on how to be the super chief executive officer based on, the, based on Muhammad. He never yeah. accepted defeat. He never quit trying. There are a lot of positive attributes to Muhammad. Yes. It's just that the thing I don't like about him is, is, is that he insists that his positive attributes are my positive attributes. That's when I go, whoa, dude, step back. Well, it gets uncomfortable when he says, also, if you don't agree, you have to die. Uh, that makes me very uncomfortable, Richard. <laughs> now, I know that I'm going to die. I'm a 75-year-old man, but I like to uh-huh. do it on my terms and in my time, not yeah. from some irritated jihadi. Yeah, yeah, with your own method, too. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, so. Okay. So, hmm, interesting. So, so, the whole thing about the status of women overall is that it's just accepted that they are, except in the one um, context of, of motherhood, that other than that, they're second, at least second or maybe lower class citizens. Right, it appears to way. me that that is the case. I mean, I mean, when you're told, the, when you're told that even if there's bread in the oven and you're taking it out and the husband wants sex, you're to give it to him and let the bread burn. I'm like, you know, I think that's a little too much <laughs> on the authoritative side. You know, I mean, <laughs> but the point of that is not burnt bread. The point of that is is that the woman is totally at the back and call of the male. And it's yeah. not just her husband. Before that, it was her, her brother and her father. The woman is always to be dominated by a male, no matter what stage of her life she is in. Okay. That's the other thing that I find a bit awkward for a lifetime. Yeah, that's, that's not talked about as much as the marital situation. But even as a child, I mean, the brothers and the father have the right to kill you if you disgrace the family with your sexual behavior. And your sexual okay. behavior, by the way, could be listening to the Rolling Stones. Okay, okay. Man, it is, yeah. the, it is the job of the honor killings, which are usually done against women, are mm-hmm. not some drunken, white trash, rowdy Saturday night. This is plotted and schemed within the family, and the mother may even participate in it. But certainly the brothers and male cousins and fathers are, and uncles are expected to participate in this killing. Why? Because she shamed the family, because she was seen dancing. Or, you know, I mean, that's, that's the problem to me, is that if you, yeah. you have to do it everything Islam's way, and if you don't, you can be harmed. It's well, not in like modern times, we've heard of the capital offense of wearing nail polish among young girls and things like that. Inez, I think, talked about that. That's right. She, by the way, this is a remarkable woman. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Awesome, you know, awesome example for any of us that are thinking about beginning to learn what courage is. A male or female, she's an example to all human beings. 
Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. So uh, you're talking about honor killings. Was were these invented by Islam, or were they going on before in Arabia? I've got a feeling they were going on before, but they're certainly incorporated into the Sharia, not directly. Now let's get this straight: the Quran does not demand honor killings, but it does say things like this in the Sharia that a parent is not responsible if they kill their child. A grandparent is not responsible if they kill their child. Well, let me get this straight. A woman is to be subjugated in every way. If she's seen as being too frisky in the world of sex, she, there's no, you're not commanded to kill her, but if you're told there's no penalty if you do, I say you're more than halfway to the goal of killing. Well, you're saying your child, can you kill your male child too or not? It just says children. Okay. So are there things that the males could do as children that would disgrace the family and you have to kill them? Hmm, I've not thought about this. And I'm not coming up with anything, so I won't say anything. Okay. Thought, uh, Just, but, that's an, but that is an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I've never heard of a male child or male family member being subject to an honor killing, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. I don't know. Oh, it doesn't. Uh, what's going to happen now is you've now... I enjoy it when people ask me questions I don't know the answer to because now I get to look that up and study it. Honor yeah, I'd love to hear maybe next time. Um, yeah, so, um, okay, as a, a girl, well, you were already saying that even before Muhammad, they were, I read your book, and they were, the, this particular one, and, and they were saying they would take their infant daughters and bury them alive. That's how they This liked. was pre-Islam. Before Islam. Yeah. Now, as by the a, way, Go ahead. We need to understand something here. It was very common in societies before modern medicine, under times of great stress, if there was uh, if there was a food famine, that children uh-huh. would be would be killed. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not. The, the, what has happened here is this has been incorporated into Islam. Look, everything, practically everything about Islam came from the society around it. The only thing that Muhammad brought. There's two new truths found in the Quran. The first truth is Muhammad is the prophet of Allah. Everything else that's found in right. the Meccan Quran is rehashed. There's a second new truth exposed in the Quran of Medina, which is if you don't believe that Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, you can be harmed. Other yeah. than that, the work is all derivative. And by that I mean it was taken from what came before. It was borrowed. Okay, this is not well, a condemnation. It's just an observation. If that's true... Then how does it apply to all of these beliefs about women? Well, they picked up everything that was around him and simply incorporated it into Islam. I mean, the ritual prayers, for instance, the uh, circuit. Well, well, yeah, I, I got that. But I mean, as far as believing that women were just uh, objects to be used, was that also picked up from other places? I'm sure it was. However, now that I'm thinking about it, in terms of the Sirah, now, let me see about this. Ah, we have Umar. Umar complains to Muhammad that in Mecca we were masters of our women. But now then that they've moved to Medina, they're becoming, they're talking back to us. So what this tells us from his comment is, is that he is used to being in the authoritative position. And what's happening in Medina, this is, has to do with wife beating. And he uh-huh. says, you know, we need to keep these women in line. So we're seeing here that this was not something that purely came from Muhammad, but from the culture itself. But Muhammad, by the way, on the subject of wife beating, says never ask a man why he beats his wife. Now he also said this 
don't strike Allah's handmaidens. So don't strike women, but then again, don't ask if they're beaten. Again, we have dualism in the subject in which, which one do you want? You want wife beating? You got it. You want no wife beating? You have that too. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. So the husband does get to make a lot of choice and have discretion about how to apply different exactly. parts of Sharia, right? He does. And he doesn't have to ask anybody if he wants to leave the house. Yeah, exactly. Now, what? speaking of leaving the house, you hear a lot of, you know, modern Muslim women in, in Islamic countries uh, talking about not being able to drive. Yes. Well, now think about it. Why would you want a woman out unaccompanied by a male? As a matter of fact, strictly speaking, a woman is never supposed to be in public without an unmarriageable uh, a man who couldn't marry her. So it's okay for her to be out with, say, her brother, her uncle, or a male companion, but they just have to be a blood relative that she couldn't possibly marry. So the whole object of the game is, is to keep women controlled and contained. Now, getting into a car takes you outside of the purvey of the men in your family. So we can see already the difficulties here. Well, what about if you put your brother in the passenger seat? Well, that ought to be all right, I guess. But I think in Saudi Arabia, they don't even want to take that first step. Okay. So I'm just wondering, if they do they deny women the, the right to drive no matter who they're with in some of those countries? You know, I, I, you've asked, I'm not sure about this. I'm not sure okay. about this. Strictly, my understanding of the Sharia would be if as long as she's got her father with her or her brother in the passenger seat, I don't see any reason for her not driving. What they don't want is women driving with women and then possibly coming into the idea of being outside of the male influence and doing things right. the males wouldn't want them to do. Yeah, the world would start falling apart for sure. Well, literally it would start falling apart. Yeah, okay. So mostly the woman lives at home, basically. Yes, if, if well, that's, where she's, uh, that's where she's supposed to be. Or okay. be anywhere else if the male wants her to be. She's you not know, always supposed to go to the mosque without permission. We haven't said anything about education. Are there rules about that for women? I'm thinking here. Not that I know of. Okay. I, but education in general, under the Sharia, should be spent primarily on the Quran, the Sirah, the Hadith, in particular, in memorizing the Quran. Right. That's where the real knowledge comes from. But I don't okay. know about women. In general, they're not encouraged to. Why would a woman want to go ahead, if you're living in a strict Sharia, let's say Islamic State, yeah. Why would you woman want? What would a woman need with an accounting degree anyway? Yeah, it's true. It would just distract you from the truth, I guess. Right. But it, it it just makes me wonder what the rules are. You know, even now in a place that's very strict under Islamic law, uh, what do what do they do as far as deciding whether women want to? Well, first of all, if they're being obedient, they couldn't really go to school without bringing a relative with them, right? I'm not sure how that's done, but somehow or another, I do know of a man who was a brain physiologist who gave a lecture in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and this was to a bunch of medical students, and I presume some of the medical students were women because he asked the question when the lecture was over, where are the women? And they said, oh, they were in the balcony behind a screen. So these okay. women were, okay. were behind a balcony in a screen, and I'm sure they were wearing the niqab and the black bag as well yeah so they were there for the information but they could not be okay. seen i've been to mosques in which you could see the women in the hall but during the mosque itself they either sat in the rear or to the right of where i was sitting 
So that kind of answers the education question, it, you know, because if that's happening now, it's it probably is that or more strict in the past. But and what we see in America is that Islam is looser than it is in other places. We, yeah. Islam, America does have an influence on this. It's not, I don't think there are many Muslim women in America who want to not have some form of education. So right. America is changing Islam. And we need, the reason I want to mention this is we need to remind people that we're discussing about the doctrine of Islam. We're not discussing Muslims as such. A person can call themselves a Muslim and do all kinds of things, including having a beer at a football game. But that doesn't mean that the doctrine says he can do that. Yeah, just, no, this is just mark, the belief system per se. This is, what's, this is the code, what's, what the codification is. And, yeah. we need to, and this, by the way, is my whole style, is, is that I don't talk about Muslims. I talk about Islam, which means I'm talking about what Muhammad did and what Allah did. I think it's very important to keep this in mind because... I'm noticing things. People confuse being anti-Islam with anti-Muslim. I'm not against Muslims. I'd have to know them better to be against them or for them. But I am against the doctrine of Islam. And uh, this is just something that needs to be repeated again and again. I see newspaper headlines yeah. in which Claire Lopez is called, she may be part of uh, Trump's security team, she is yeah. called, she's anti-Muslim. Claire Lopez, and I know her well, is not anti-Muslim, she's anti-Sharia. She's anti-political right. Islam. Right. Well, she's probably hoping that any Muslims that want to escape from it could do so. Well, I mean, she's I would. not, she's I not mean, in favor of having them, you know, caught in that system. I'm all for apostasy myself. Yeah, yeah. And, and right, right now, that's, you know, it's only, that's only possible in places where Islam is not being enforced. Well, what usually happens with apostasy in Muslim countries like Saudi Arabia is, is that you just slack off on what you're doing, but you don't ever speak against it. Islam yeah, yeah. is not a matter of what's in your heart. It's a matter of what you do and how you're seen doing it. So as long as you don't raise a ruckus with your apostasy, nobody cares. But they have to see you praying five times a day in some of the obvious things, right? Or they could I'm be not sure how you get around that, but I'm certain that you could, you could cut some corners. I know yeah. human, I'm a human being, and let me tell you, any set of rules you need to break, you'll find a way to do it. Yeah, yeah, we've certainly seen that. And, you know, that leads to a uh, question that we'll probably deal with in a little while, which is, you know, what's the situation with uh, following the all of these roles that are specified for women in not only Europe nowadays, but in modern America and you know, how is it really being lived? Because the Muslims that I've met, uh, who have all been friends of mine, I haven't met any violent jihadis or anybody who's tried to cut my head off or anything like that. I've, the Muslim friends that I have have almost never tried to cut my head off and have been really great people. Yeah, and, well, that's, and that's because totally different than what we're talking about. They're human beings making human decisions. <clears throat> all I discuss is what their doctrinal decisions can be. Yeah. I don't say that you have to do it that way. I'm just saying Muhammad says you have to do it this way. If you choose not to do it. I mean, I've met Muslims. When I was in Munich, I met this Muslim. He's standing there with a beer in his hand. Well, beer right. is not halal. But he, and so in that case, he was not really acting out Islamic doctrine. He was acting out his own personal doctrine. So if he was standing there with that beer in, uh, 
in uh, Riyadh or somewhere like that, it oh, would be a different God, response. That would be a little different. <laughs> that would be a so, lot different. That you would see some uh, authority figures appear in the near future. Yes, yes, yes. Because he's in Munich and he's the only Muslim in the room. There was about 40 people in the room and he was the only one. He was introduced to me as a moderate Muslim. And I said, no, he's not a moderate Muslim. He's a Muslim who's not practicing, practicing Islam. That's my right, yeah, distinction here. Exactly. Right. Right. And then there would be no, uh, this particular world conflict that we're witnessing would actually not exist. So, it's just a matter of how it's being followed, that whether there's a problem or not. Well, I call it the apostasy question. Uh, one of the, the Al-Qaeda imams said, if it were not for apostasy, I think it was Al-Awaki who said this, said if it were not for apostasy, Islam would cease to exist. And I thought to myself, what an incriminating statement. You mean if you didn't kill people, everybody would leave? I mean, that's what he's saying. I guess that is what he's saying, because after after Muhammad died, wasn't that the question of whether they would leave well, yeah, or not? Yeah, there was a whole bunch of people who said, well, Islam was good while Muhammad was here, but we're out of here, so bye-bye. And Abu yeah. Bakr said, I don't think you're leaving. <laughs> I love the line from the Hotel California, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Yeah, so Abu Bakr gave them the free choice. They could leave or die, right? Yeah, I mean, hey, we're still making choices here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so... You know, after looking at the idea of apostasy, and, and I think we need to look at that some more because it's a really critical, huge issue, and it's very relevant to a lot of areas of life. I, I want to take just a minute out and bring up a point about, and this really is not, you know, out of line of what we're talking about, but about consciousness of human beings in general. And I think what what we've been leading toward, and we can come back to this near the end of our talk uh, tonight, but I think what what's kind of gradually coming into focus in my mind is that you've got a belief system where if you want to take the real simple bottom line view on women, they're not they're not as valuable or as good or as valid as men. I mean, maybe fifty percent or or maybe less than that, but um, in Western society, and especially in America, if it follows its ideals, which hasn't been done up to now, but hopefully it will be, uh, women and men have equal value, and it's because they're not bodies. They're what's in the body. They're the consciousness or the spirit or the soul or whatever your belief system wants you to put the word on it, but they're not their physical body. Somebody missing an arm is not less than somebody who's not missing an arm and somebody, a man is not less than a woman because he's got a different body and likewise with the woman. So, you've got a, a belief system coming in where women are definitely, a, I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they're definitely less than men in every single way except maybe motherhood. But, um, you know, there are two aspects of that. One is anybody who wants to believe whatever they want in this country is free to do that, but not by force over someone else. So it gets into areas where, all right, let's say you believe women are not as good in so many different ways than men. If women voluntarily want to take part in that belief, they absolutely should be allowed to do that in America. But if it's going to be enforced on women to do that, whether or not they want to, or enforced on men 
to take that belief system whether or not they agree with it. That's a whole different question. And I think that's really where where the potential issue comes up, right? It's that consenting adults can do whatever they want and believe whatever they want, speak whatever they want. You know, uh, people who believe in absolute fascism, slavery, or, you know, whatever they want can be free to hold meetings and talk about it. But as soon as they start enforcing it on people who don't agree, inside or outside of the system, that's a whole different issue. So, I mean, I hope this isn't an irrelevant digression, but what's your Quite feeling? Quite contrary. What do you think about all that? Islam has a dualistic legal system. And by that I mean it is it has its formal courts, but it has another layer of justice, which I call vigilante justice. That is, uh, every Muslim is enjoined to forbid that which is wrong and encourage that which is good. Notice what I said, every Muslim. So this means there are qualities about women that can be enforced by the community at large. That is, Muslims have their the ummah, the Islamic society has its own level of law that it can enforce through honor killings and other such things. Does Ummah mean law, by the way? No, Ummah is the community. U-M-M-A, it's the, it's the okay. community. Right. And there's a strong sense of community in Islam. That is, there's not such an emphasis on the individual as there is in the community as a whole. And this, by the way, is one of the things that makes uh, Islam so strong. People, you mentioned apostasy. One reason that apostasy is not so prominent is that every Muslim is enjoined to forbid that which is evil, and apostasy is evil. So if you decide to not be a Muslim, you have to deal with the fact that the society as a whole enforces Muslimism. I just made the word up. Okay. So therefore, qualities about women. So the enforcement, let's give an example. Islam says that women should be covered, and uh, what, what that means is up to interpretation, but the street justice itself can enforce this, and we're seeing this of all places in Europe. There are women now who are beginning to realize that if they will modify their dress, they will not be as, won't be as apt to get attacked in some sexual manner. Right. So what's happening is, is the Ummah, the Muslim community, is beginning to enforce Sharia dress laws on the Kafir. But it does this not through a legal decision, but through an enforcement by the community. Mm-hmm. And so the woman is restrained not only as an individual, but by the community as a whole. So this is just something that's important to, to deal with, is right. the so for enforcing and joining that which is good and forbidding that which is bad leads to a vigilante justice. And it's highly reminds, effective. Re- reminds me of what happened in parts of the Northeast of this country when they were um, killing witches, mm-hmm. right? Because, I, I mean, mostly what was going on is they were herbalists and they were doing kinds of healing that were obviously of the devil, right? Because people thought they must be evil because they didn't understand them. But they would all get together and say, this person's a witch, but they did try to be fair about it and they'd throw them with, with rocks tied to them into a river and if they didn't uh, sink, then they were innocent. So th- By the way, the persecution of witches leads back to the uh, Muslim occupation of Spain, in which 
Europeans would come and study the knowledge that was available in the libraries within the Spanish, I mean, within the Islam. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what they studied was witchcraft and superstitious elements. Islam is a very superstitious culture. And so the, the idea of what to do with witches and how to spot witches, uh, Europeans helped to learn that from the Muslims in Spain. This is not a fact that's widely known. Mm. Yeah, I never heard of that. That's interesting. Oh, so, if you, so, you hang around me, you'll hear a lot of things you haven't heard. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you clarify that a little bit, since that's totally new to me. I mean, what, who was going to Spain to study this stuff? Well, we hear a lot about the Golden Age of Spain in which, and the Golden Age of Baghdad, in which it's never explained how this comes about, but where the Europeans are fools and ignorant people living in caves and eating dirt, that's an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. And whereas the Muslims knew everything and they were brilliant scholars. So part of this, there is some truth to the fact that in Spain there were larger libraries than there were in Europe, but we have to understand that Europe became impoverished because of the ongoing jihad in the Mediterranean, which basically eliminated all trade. And once you eliminate trade, you start eliminating everything. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for instance, part of the trade with, with Europe was from Egypt to Europe, which was the sale of papyrus. You don't think about this, but in early days, uh, all of Europe used papyrus to write on, not animal skins, not parchment. The use of parchment became much more prominent after Islam had taken over the Mediterranean trade. And so the trade in papyrus went down to about zero. Yeah, I mean, there are people in our country now that their entire life they've been able to go to the store and get copy paper. But it wasn't exactly. Imagine if paper ceased to exist. Imagine what that would do to scholarship. So, this was what the, the commercial jihad in the Mediterranean, the naval jihad, helped to enforce was the poverty of learning within Europe. So, anyway, back to this question of Spain. It is true that at that time that Spain had larger libraries, and because the intellectual output of the Europeans had been crushed by the jihad on the Mediterranean, prohibiting trade. Mm-hmm. So they did go to seek knowledge, but one of the knowledge that part of the knowledge that they learned as they went to Spain was about witches and superstition. They also learned about Muhammad and the Hadith. So this was a mixed blessing. But, anyway, it's, it's, but these are Muslims that were going there to learn, right? No, 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 no. These are Europeans that went to Spain oh, to learn. Oh, 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 okay. I got you, right. And part of what they learned was about witchcraft and how to locate a witch. You see, witches are enjoined against in the Quran. Okay. So therefore, this knowledge about witches it was part of Islam. Anyway, that's not a widely known subject. No. No, I didn't remember that either. Okay, so how did this correspond? Well, I guess it, we're talking about way before they were torturing and killing witches in America, right? Yes, but I'm just saying some of the roots, there are more, Europe has more historical, the impact of Islam upon history of Europe is not a subject that most people want to study. That is, most well, Europeans, I'm, because they were on the losing end of this battle, it's not a pleasant subject to study. Okay. Isn't that strange that there's not more interest in people just to know whatever's true, regardless of, you know, (laughs) that always just shocks me. It seems like it's a natural desire of people to just want to know what really happened. That's the mark of critical thought. Authoritative thought is that you just, you pay attention to what you've been told to pay attention to. 
But no, the, the inquiring mind, scientific thought, critical thought, is like, wait a minute, I don't know anything about this. That's the reason I became greatly enchanted with studying the intellectual history of Europe, when it was like, because no one ever explains why, look, here you have Europe, it's the Roman Empire, which divided itself into the Western Empire, in the which was Roman, and the Eastern Empire, which was actually more Greek, Byzantium, mm-hmm. that... Why did it go from a classical golden age down to such poverty? Not only poverty about, I mean, knowledge just suddenly ground to a halt. You have to ask yourself the question, why and how did that happen? Because the Europeans during the Dark Ages were not any less intelligent than they were during the height of Roman Empire. Okay, so what are the, what are the rough periods of the golden age that you're talking about versus the Dark Age that followed? Well... We have two golden ages. There's the one in Baghdad and the one in uh, Spain. The Andalusian golden age and the Baghdad golden age. Okay. So there's two of them. But they both, both of these, we're, we're, we're veering off the track about women, but I think it's a fascinating thing to study the intellectual history. It might be relevant context when we come back around. Anyway, if you think about it, the Sarah itself records the fact that there was very little formal knowledge in Arabia. The Jews and Christians were called people of the book. Who today would you call a person who reads books? I mean, to say, oh, I know this guy and he reads books would not distinguish him at all. Whereas yeah, it, may, it, maybe another 50 years, you know, because right. it's declining. But anyway, I know what you mean. So what we have is in, in Arabia, the ability to read a book was singular. I mean, it's, it made you stand out. Very few Arabs were, uh, who were pagan were literate. And mm-hmm. this is not a slur. This is just an accounting of what you find within its within the history of the time. So okay. how does it? How do you go from this transition that in the year six thirty two most of Arabia was illiterate to saying that in the year nine hundred in Baghdad th- two to three centuries later all of a sudden it's like wow a powerhouse an intellectual powerhouse. What could possibly be the roots of this intellectual knowledge? Well, it did not come from Arabia because Arabia we know that Muhammad lived in a mud hut. And I'm mud, sun-baked brick. I don't want mm-hmm. to be derogatory, but I mean, that is how it was described. Right. And so how did it go from fantastic architecture? You can never, you'll never build enough buildings in sun-baked brick to come up with brilliant architecture. Well, it, it turns out the architecture... It's kind of like Adobe, right? Right, it's Adobe. Used in the Southwest, right. Right. Okay. So how do you go from a culture which is basically illiterate and has, and has used Adobe brick to build buildings to the beautiful structures that were in Baghdad and the wonderful learning. Where did this come from? It did not come from Arabia. It came from the conquered people, the conquered Zoroastrians, the conquered Christians, and the conquered Jews. So the, And the architecture and whatnot came from them as well. And this is not a slur on anybody. I mean, it's just the natural way things work. So the architecture that's now identified with Islam that's so spectacular is what you're talking about, right? Yes, the barrel vault, the dome, uh, the arches, these all came from previous architecture. Okay. So, uh, and like I say, th- this is just natural. This is the way things work. The invader learns from those he conquers. I mean, it mm-hmm. goes on and on like this. Mm-hmm. But anyway, you have to ask yourself the question, why is it that at the Golden Age, the Arabs, the Muslims were portrayed as being such brilliant geniuses, and quite to the contrary, those that are living in the dark ages of Europe are denigrated as being buffoons almost, and people right. incompetent of learning. 
So I never bought that theory. I mean, you, how do people suddenly go from being brilliant to stupid? Yeah, that's not the way it works. And the, the Hollywood movies that come out about the Dark Ages show really clearly, you know, that the people in Europe were just barely above cavemen. cavemen. Well, they were impoverished. And what my radical theory is, which, by the way, is not so radical anymore, is that the impoverishment came because of the jihad in the Mediterranean, which eliminated all sea trade. Ninety percent of the Christian boats were, were disappeared in terms of being able to do business. There was limited work in, in, uh, in uh, some Italian states. But once you have impoverishment, look, I don't know what city you live in, but let's imagine that 90% of all the commerce is shut off. There's no telephones, there's no internet, and that only 10% of the trains and trucks and airplanes come into your town that are coming into it now. What would happen to the local economy? It would collapse. Right. Yeah, a lot of people would die for one thing. A lot of people would die. There would be a lot of... We would enter a sort of dark age, not because the people are stupid, but because all of a sudden there's not enough money to do business. Well, also, their their better instincts might not be the ones that were most evident after that. But anyway, I'm just I'm dwelling on this in order to point out that there was a golden age and that part of this golden age in Spain meant there was a stable government with libraries and Europeans went to Spain to study. And one of the things they studied was witchcraft. And superstitious behavior. Okay. Remember, Islam, Muhammad himself had a spell cast upon him. And it had to do, he thought he was having intercourse with his wives and he wasn't. So Muhammad himself was involved in being the victim of black magic. Right. So Islam is filled with superstitious behavior and magical behavior. And I'm just saying that the Europeans learned this in their trips to Spain. It's real simple. Mm. Okay. So... So how did let's tie that into back to the subject of women? How does this are, are well, related in some way? I think they are. First off, let's point something out. Today, you've mentioned the equality of women, and we just had a, a woman run for president. She was defeated, but she ran for the highest office in the land. You implicitly assume that men and women are equal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just implicitly assume that. Where did you get that idea? Because the old ideas about women, even in Greece and Rome, was they were subjugated to more or less a degree. And yet you're mouthing a, a, a doctrine, of a social doctrine, which is shocking to many people. Not today in America, because we're, we're trained to think that men and women are equal. Right. So, but this idea had to come about, and it came about in a, nation, in a civilization that had its roots within Christianity and Judaism. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, classical critical thought. Right. So today we assume this, but in the in the past this was not the case. The problem with Islam that's so dreadful is is that it is all cast in concrete. That is, the subjugation of women is part of the Hadith, part of the Sirah, and part of the Quran. Well, the Hadith is there are the actions of the perfect man. The Sirah is the life of the perfect man, mm-hmm. and the Quran is perfect. So how do you change Islam so that it can possibly have equality of women? I do not see how that can happen. Okay. Um, now, you said the remarkable thing about it that makes it very powerful is that it's set in concrete. How how was it before Islam in the Arabic uh, community of all these different religions that were coexisting? Do we know much about uh, how it was I the same and different? 
Okay. There were many forms of Christianity in the world that, in the year 632, Muhammad died. Roughly in the year 640, that's a little late, but the Islam exploded out of the Middle East and started conquering. So, I lost my train of thought, Richard. Well, I, I, was, think, I was thinking, um, I'm not sure where you were going with that, but what I was wondering is, when Muhammad first became officially the prophet in Mecca, Mm-hmm. Uh, what what were the other religions? Uh, oh, okay. Think about right. the Thank treatment you. of women and, and their status. Well, there were there were many forms of Christianity. Zoroastrianism was the religion primarily of Persia, uh, mm-hmm. which was what we call Iran today. It was half Zoroastrianism and half a f- mystical form of Christianity, Nestorian okay. Christianity. So there were many forms of Christianity available in the in the, uh, the uh, Muhammad's when he lived. It was, uh, Turkey was primarily Christian. Most of the Middle East was Christian. But like I say, the Zoroastrianism, uh, Afghanistan was Buddhist. Uh, Pakistan was Hindu. Mm-hmm. So conquest changed all of this. But mm. there were many mm. forms of religion, and there were mainly very, something else that's interesting, and this is a, indeed a sidebar, is that in Christianity, the early church was all Jewish. I mean, Jesus was a Jew, Mary and Joseph were Jews, the apostles were Jews. But there were an element of conquest happened there in which the Romans invaded Jerusalem and destroyed it because they were hacked off at the way the Jews were politically resisting them. This Mm -hmm. destroyed a Jewish Christian church. I'm just bringing in to show this. There were many forms of Christianity. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Here's an interesting sidebar which has nothing to do with women, but I find fascinating. There was a church, an Arabic church, which held that Jesus was not the Son of God, but was the prophet of Allah. Huh, wow, I didn't know that. Yes, and that there is, uh, and that it denied the Trinity of Jesus. Not all the forms of early Christianity believe they saw Jesus not as a Son of God and part of the Trinity, but that there was only one God, Allah, and that mm-hmm. Jesus was his prophet. This was part okay, of and that, so you're saying that that was... That existed before Islam, and then it was also adopted by Islam also? Well, now here we get off into something that could be very interesting. Whence comes forth Islam? There are those, and I'm one of them, who hold that Islam is an adaptation of this heretical Arabic church who believe that Jesus was the prophet of Allah. So that was not an idea that first came from Muhammad? No, because if you look at the life of Muhammad, and you look at the Hadith, Richard, there's no way that all of this is true, simply because it was only written down some 180 years after he died. So, well, wasn't it wasn't it saved on little scraps of of parchment and bones and stuff before that? That was true of the Quran, but not of the oh, Hadith oh, and the Sirah. Oh, oh. Okay. Okay. So this stuff was written down nearly two centuries after he died, and there's far too much detail in the Sirah. Here's, I grew up in a culture before television, and what people mm-hmm. did, they sat around, and they talked and told stories and jokes. Now, here's an mm-hmm. element about storytelling. The more a story is told, the better it gets. How does the story get better? Because little sidebars are added, little details are added, so that the story gets better the more it's told. The Sirah of the Life of Muhammad clearly shows this. There are far, far, far too many details of what Muhammad said, what he had for lunch, what color camel he rode. You think to yourself, wait a minute, 200 years later, how could we possibly know any of this information? Okay, so that that was, you're saying that it, it didn't go through 
a uh, any kind of formalized or even informal process of political decision going in there. It was just oral tradition and what everybody, what, whatever somebody said they remembered could get in. Exactly. Okay, okay. Yeah, that is really interesting because they'd have to have a, an extremely powerful, accurate oral tradition over 180 years to get all those details right. Well, there's just too many details to get right. I mean, the Sarah is 800 pages in fine print. Uh-huh. You just look at that and you say, wait a minute, people memorized this and passed it along for 180 years before they wrote it down? I don't think so. Who, what, what person or group of people decided what part of that fine print should be included in the official final version? That We don't know that, do we? We know his name, Isak, Ibn Isak. Okay. But uh, the, there's, when I talk about this Arab church, which believe that Jesus was the prophet of Allah, I'm yeah. just saying that I find it very interesting that there was a form of Christianity which mirrors the basic fundamentals of Islam. And you have to ask yourself the question, because it occurred next to Arabia. You're like, wait a minute. These two things happening together are too much, too, there's too much coincidence here. And so mm-hmm. some scholars, myself included, believe that what we call Islam is actually a Christian heresy. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. So anyway, I digress, okay. but you've got to admit it's an interesting digression. Well, yeah, I, it was my fault because I started it. But um, Oh, that's because you have I, a curious mind. I, I think you're, you're just <laughs> painting an interesting picture between maybe people that veered away t- from the, the main accept, accepted body of Christian beliefs into, you know, kind of a gray area that approached what became Islam. Mm-hmm. And as far as the belief of the status of women, um, I've met a lot of uh, very fundamentalist-believing Christians and Jews that have some form of the subjugation of women as an accepted uh, part of the will of God that, you know... In particular, Judaism. The woman has to obey, even now, and that's not Islam. It is not. But somehow or another, out of this mix between Christianity and the classical logical thought from the Greeks, and and then we have the body of thought from the Jews, from that mix came equality of women. Where else did it come from? Right, right. And so what we just tacitly assume today is like, well, of course, I mean, when we started this show off, I I said, look, I am very pro-woman. I was raised by two women. I have two daughters. So, but for me to argue that men and women are equal intellectually is a modern argument. As a matter of fact, there are hadith which state just the opposite, that women have half the intelligence of men, and that mm-hmm. most of the occupants of women, most of the occupants of hell are women. Well, why is that, Muhammad? Because they were ungrateful to their husbands. Right, yeah. This is a very famous hadith from Muhammad, and it leads to implications in the courts of law. It takes two, the testimony of two women to equal that of a man. Right. So there are a lot of implications with this, the hadith. But remember, these hadith were written down nearly 200 years after Muhammad. So what, whatever they were, they are now accepted as perfect doctrine. Yeah. Well, I, I guess what strikes me is that it just seems really odd to me that you need 
a modern understanding or, or somebody writing something down that no men and women are equal. Because if you're just semi-awake in your life, you can just see it. You don't need to read about it. I and, agree with you. Right? I mean, why would you need a new belief to say, oh, yes, well, the sky is actually blue. Well, you, can act- and yet, you could actually look at the sky and tell that. Yes, but what you do, we also we we did go through a time in which it was considered that men and women were not equal intellectually, and that women's role was barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. I mean, we have that in some of our own history, but we yeah. have ev- intellectually evolved beyond that. But here's what is most puzzling to me: Why is it that there are women who are leftist in their voting politics who say that Islam? is a wonderful religion and it treats women well when it's just the opposite. So we have to understand that this doctrine of women, which you and I find a bit appalling, is embraced by many people in the voting public here in America today. Well, there is the possibility that they just don't know. I mean, Well, but, not only do they think, not know, they don't want to learn. That's my observation. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say next, is that not knowing is not a problem because you can find out. Oh. But if you... If you combine it with a, defense, a strong defense against ever learning, then it becomes more difficult. As a teacher, and my father was a teacher, my mother was a school librarian, ignorance is the human disease that is easiest to fix if, and I might add only if, the patient wants to be cured. And, and I mean, I know this is an, all the, for some reason, it's like one diversion after another during this part of the discussion, but it just... <laughs> It comes to my mind, I, I'm interested in what you think is the psychological reason why humans have a strong desire not to learn. <sighs> You're asking the wrong man there because <laughs> I'm 75 years old and I have a huge library and my complaint is, is I don't have time enough to read all my books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, that, I mean, that sounds I thought, normal to me. <laughs> that sounds normal. But trust me, <laughs> right. there are many people for whom... Or at least let's just say this, the kind of knowledge that they consider interesting are going back and forth as to looking at a picture, what do they call it, uh, Snapchat. I mean, why does somebody want to spend their time looking at a picture of what you had for breakfast? Now, that's more knowledge, I'll grant you, but it's not useful knowledge or practical knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess, you know, looking back over the long term of history, and I mean, you know, tens of thousands of years, you see cycles of awareness or consciousness going up and down. And it seems like we're kind of in the middle of a, you can see aspects of certainly dark ages right now, but you can also see some hopeful signs that that may be changing. Well, I get up every day and work for that to happen, Richard. I mean, that's basically the goal of what I'm trying to do. I'm an educator. I mean, what are you and I doing with this conversation? We're hoping that someone will listen to it and learn. Yeah, so we're both not just really not trying to blow away another hour or two. No, 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 no. I've, remember, I've got, books, I've, I've got books I could be reading <laughs> if we weren't doing this. Right. <laughs> but we hope to educate people. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, you know, the question for the world is with respect to where this goes with, you know, the bottom line with Islam is if, if you really study it and you're willing and brave enough to find out what it actually says – it's not radical Islam that is attacking and raping and killing and stealing and invading right now. It's just people really following what Muhammad said to do. Yes. How can it be radical? This, this one of the things. 
One of the verses that was in the book of Genesis that puzzled me, because why would you bother to talk about it, is that in the Jewish story of the creation, Adam got to name the animals. Well, I thought to myself when I was very young, so what? I mean, I can, I mean, I had a dog and I named him Junior. So what big deal is me calling the dog Junior? Well, much later, I've realized that part of the crucial thing in learning is proper naming. The first step in knowledge is to be able to name and have concepts. And uh, so... We, well, yeah, I mean, it colors how you think of a thing depending on its name. It's like buying something because of its package. But when you say it's radical Islam, that makes it seem like it's kind of wacko or crazy. But Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it is not wacko and it's not crazy. It is, it is literal Islam. Uh, a friend of mine who's a Hindu coined that terminology. He said, forget radical. He said, it's just literal. They read the Hadith. They read right. the Sirah. They read the Quran and they say, I believe this. Or at least the leaders do, and they tell the bottom line to the followers, right? Well, now, this is a human condition in which we've got people who will always assert their leadership. but it's So maybe there's no such thing as radical Islam. There is not. Well, I'll tell you what radical Islam is. That's apostasy. Okay, okay. That would certainly be radical according to the belief system itself. Right. But if you're doing what Muhammad did... you're, You're going directly against God if you try to leave. So, if you cut off a, a Kafir's head, that's not radical. Muhammad repeatedly had people beheaded, repeatedly ordered them to be beheaded. So, how can beheading be radical? It is normative. That's the hardest thing to wrap your mind around when you study Islam, is the fact that the normative behavior is that of Muhammad. So, he right. cut people's heads off. He had sex slaves. So having sex slaves is not radical. It's not extreme. It's not extraordinary. It is normative. Okay. So really what Sharia law, which we talked about last time, is, is the process of making everything normal. Exactly. You hit it dead on. And it's a process. It's not necessarily a book of laws. That's one of the defenses that people say, Muslims say, well, you think that Islam is just a series of laws, that Sharia is a series of laws. No, 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 no. It is an interpretive process to find what is normal in the behavior. So if once airplanes are invented or once television is invented, you have to use the process of Muhammad to bring, incorporate television into the Islamic society. Now, by the way, what they did, this is an interesting sidebar, in Saudi Arabia, when television first came out, the imam said, oh, no, no, this is the work of the devil. So we don't want to have anything to do with with TV. A shrewd politician within the Saudi government says, install the TV stations, install televisions. And the first thing they did on the the air was to broadcast readings from the Quran. Well, Uh now then the mullahs, not mullahs, that's a Shia concept. The imams and the scholars were now caught in a paradox. If television were the work of the devil, how is it that it could transmit the teaching of the Quran? So they had to give up on that. Okay, 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 interesting. However, but the point is, if is they the, had if to, television used pictures, that would be pretty evil, though, right? Well, see, that was the other thing they had had uh, <clears throat> had problems with. But the point is, is they managed to use an interpretive process to take what Muhammad in the Quran said and arrive at a new decision. Okay, okay. The process of what we'll call creative interpretation. They well, or, or saying that if Muhammad had been there to make the decision, he would have Ex- seen the good content and said it was okay. Exactly, exactly. 
So, but you're right. There is no extreme. Extreme Islam is apostasy, radical. What we call radical beheading, and these other matters are calling women semi-intelligent. Most of the occupants of women are hell. Most of the occupants of hell are women. This is all normative, literal behavior. This is not extraordinary, and it is certainly not radical. Right. Right. Okay. So. Um, it, it it just it it really leaves the whole world in an interesting uh, dilemma, but it's a little bit different for the people within the belief system because ah. they they've been learning this normative um, understanding of life from birth, mm-hmm. not by studying it, but by hearing it over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what? What, why don't you say something about the difference between women looking at this issue from within and, and outside the system? I'm not sure that I can explain it from the woman's standpoint who's a practicing Muslim. I'm always right. left a little puzzled by that. Why yeah. would a woman want to join a religion or a political system which says she has half the intelligence of a man when obviously this is not true? So I right. cannot explain why people exist in Islam when they come into its contradictions. I cannot explain that. When I run into contradictions, I examine them and see what it means and move on. But I, I can't explain that to you. But there is something happening here which, you and I need, which I need to comment upon. You and I have now have had several hours of conversation about Islam like we're having it right now. I find these conversations to be enlightening, informative, productive, useful, and interesting. And yet, within our university system, the conversation that you and I are having right now is forbidden. Right. Because there would be people who would be traumatized. We have to understand that one reason you and I are having this conversation is, is we can't be holding this at a seminar at Vanderbilt University. Because the universities now, I noticed that there are universities and schools which are offering therapeutic sessions for those who disagree with Trump's election. That is, yeah, I've been watching this, that. This is an intellectual trauma. Wait a minute. And there's here's an idea. You know that, that they've been bringing them in crayons, Play-Doh, and pacifiers in some areas that uh, are for the college students that are too traumatized? Oh, Richard, this is the death of our civilization. It's intended to be, but that's another subject, I know. But anyway, but it's... It's uh, relevant. And let me give an exact exa- let me give an example of this. A colleague of mine, in the broadest sense of the term, is Carol Swain, Dr. Carol Swain, a tenured professor at Vanderbilt University, a mm-hmm. wonderful lady who happens to be black. Yeah, she made a mention of an idea in a class in a graduate class, and she says this idea is not politically correct, but this is what I believe: the trauma of graduate students hearing an idea that was offensive to them. The university declared that it would fire the professor if they could but that they established a 1-800 number hotline for traumatized students who could seek therapy and counseling. Richard, this is from a politically incorrect idea creates trauma? Yeah, that's an interesting concept. Actually, it's quite brilliant because if you can get that into the society, you can pretty much shut off almost all thought. Well, welcome to 1984. It's just a little late. In 1984, I think you're referring to. What did I say? 94. Oh, no, no. But 94 <laughs> might be worse than 84. <laughs> no, 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 you're right, 1984. But, I mean, who would, one of the reasons that I went to school, and you can see that I still do this, is I love knowledge, even yeah. if it's offensive knowledge. 
And it's so, but we have a school system which is now devoted to making sure that you never will hear an idea that you disagree with. So how's your mind supposed to expand? Well, how many ideas are going to be left after you count everybody who's offended? Uh, when I see the offensive ideas, there's a, you have to, it matters who's offended. There might, there's a okay. special class of those who can be victims. If you're on the victim list, then you can be offended. As yeah. a southern white male, Richard, let me assure you, offending me is not considered offensive. So it wouldn't really work for you to say you're offended and to try to get things back, huh? Well, first off, I'm used to being offended, so it's not such a traumatized event. You know, it's kind of, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm offended rather frequently, but I don't go whining and crying about it. I just work to straighten it out. Yeah. But I mean, the, I'm just pointing out the fact that you and I are having a long discussion, which has lasted for many hours, which you and I find fascinating. Mm -hmm. And yet it, this conversation is forbidden at what are supposed to be institutions of, can we say it, higher learning? It it. it, it Apparently used to be that at some point in the distant past. I, and I, I think it's interesting, too, what you're saying is that it's not only the men that are uh, insisting on this political correctness. The, the women, too, um, don't want things like this looked at, even though it would be tremendously beneficial for them if they were. Well, I don't even, to me, the benefit is simply satisfying curiosity, <clears throat> yeah, uh, I I guess I totally don't understand it. I don't. Uh, I don't either. That's the reason maybe you and I enjoy talking with each other. <laughs> I, I the only thing I can think of is is that sometimes there's so much fear right under the surface of people's consciousness that anything that they're not already familiar with, the fact that it's even a little bit unknown makes it terrifying. And anything. I guess. Political incorrectness requires being willing to look at things that are unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that might not be it, but it's, it's the only thing that comes to mind. Because you've got, in, in this particular case, I, I guess you're saying that at the, and I'd be interested to know if you've tried to give talks and what happened oh, at some of these universities. But isn't it the, if you're talking about Islam as a forbidden subject, and talking about it would theoretically help to empower women to know that, yeah, of course everybody's equal. I mean, in some ways, most women are, are way more perceptive and advanced in, in certain things than, than the average man. But the fact that everybody's equal shouldn't really be that threatening. And yet, I suspect that you get just as much pushback from women as from men. I get pushback, period. <clears throat> Let me tell you a brief story about a lecture that I gave at Vanderbilt University on statistical Islam. As a scientist, I'm the first one who seems to have applied simple statistics to Islamic text. So a group that was uh, called Youth for Western Civilization at Vanderbilt invited me. It was a, okay. it was a room full of people, uh, 150 so. The entire Middle East department came, which I didn't know. When hmm. my talk was over, and all I did was present statistical analysis, you know, that if you go through and you measure the treatment of women in the Quran, we have this percentage elevates them, this percentage is equal, and this percentage are subjugated. This okay. were, these were bar charts and pie charts and selected quotes. When my okay. talk was over, a man stood up in the back of the room and started screaming at me, thrusting his finger, said, you're a fool, you're an idiot, you should never be allowed on any campus, you're a racist. 
you've insulted years of my work. And he starts, he's shouting at me, foam flecked. And then he starts repeating himself over and over and over again. This was the head of the Middle Eastern Department. Oh, my God. This is a, uh, a professor? A tenured professor who is the head of the Middle East Department. Amazing. Wow. Now, notice what he did not do. He did not say, when you did your analysis, this, what you did here was wrong. This concept is wrong. He did not attack a single idea that I had. He said he attacked me personally as being a racist and a bigot. I was puzzled about the racism part. It was like, what if I even mention? I don't even think I mentioned Arabs at all or anything in it. But the point is, is that he accused me of being a racist, bigot, Islamophobe in a most screaming way. And yeah. so this is this is how I was treated. And he said, you should never be allowed on any college campus. What about everybody else in the audience? Well, the audience was divided into two parts. There was the people who were, we'll call outsiders of Vanderbilt. And then we had the Vanderbilt students, mostly of whom were Muslim. Okay. Uh, there, there was also, I must add, another thing about my talks, which most people are not aware of. There were also three detectives in the room. Uh-huh. This is something to be noticed. Almost everywhere I speak, Richard, there's an armed person in the room for protection. Now, think about what I just told you there. That protection at a university. To, to protect you or to protect yes, them Yes, protect from me. You? No, to okay. protect me. Okay. At a university, it is it is thought that there need to be three policemen in the room in case, what for what purpose? I'm an old man. I'm not going to be attacking anybody. Well, no, what there are, there's two arguments that this runs on, two rails this train runs on. One is Islam is the religion of peace, and the other is there needs to be armed people in the room to protect Bill. Right. There's an inherent contradiction here. Wow. And, and you have, so when you give talks at different universities, they all decide that there should be people in there to protect you from the results of your talk? I give very few talks at universities, but when I do, no matter where I give a talk, the person who invites me usually comes over and says that such that there are armed men in the room. I'm just telling you this as a measure of the fear that is involved around learning about the intellectual ideas of Islam. You mentioned fear. I'm just trying to, quote, give you a measurement of that fear. Okay. And, wow, Now, this guy that was screaming at you, the, the head of this department, I think you were saying, right? Yes. Some kind of department. Um, I, I assume you never bothered to try to write to him or anything like that afterwards. Well, there was right? an he interesting side. I mean, there's a further interesting sidebar. What? There was a woman, young woman in the room whose father is a big fan of mine. And so I'd been to her house. And so she now is a undergraduate. Here's this man. Bill, who's been at her house, and she knows him. Believe it or not, I'm a nice guy, Richard. Okay. And so here she is in a room in which it's considered that I'm a hate-filled bigot. Right. Now then, the professor who screamed at me came around to the door to waylay me on the side when I came out of the room. Yeah. She looked at him and she said, you taught Islam in my introductory course of Judaism. You, and when you said that, you said that Islam treated Jews quite well. Well, I presented some statistics about Jews which showed that Islam is filled with Jew hatred. There's more Jew hatred in the, in the Quran than there is in Mein Kampf. Right. She says, this man has another side of the story he gave me. What do you have to say about what you taught me that Islam treats Jews as, as protected and precious? 
He said, oh, these these hard right conservatives, he said, she said, I don't want to hear about hard right. I don't want to hear about conservative. I want to hear about how Muhammad treated the Jews. And I want you to tell me about it now. He looked on her, looked at her, turned on his heel and strode off. And in that moment, she suddenly realized that he had lied to her and that everything that I had said was true. Well, so in other words, there's a serious question about sincerity of professors like that or anybody who's teaching those things. It's not because they're confused necessarily. It sounds like a real serious psychological issue. Well, he was deceiving her. Yeah, but why? Why was he doing that? Because it would advance Islam. Muhammad repeatedly said to deceive the Kafir if it would advance Islam. Right. Yeah, okay, so in other words, this guy is, is quite, this man or people like him are, are very intelligent. Oh, right? yes. It, it's not that they're confused. No, no. They've just made a conscious decision to um, misrepresent what they're teaching in order to advance the cause. Exactly. So he was willing to teach her lies. Well, actually, what he did was he taught her half the truth. He taught her the half of the truth when Muhammad was in Medi- was in Mecca in which okay. the Quran speaks well of the Jews. Right. Now, right he, right. when he told her they were protected, the Demi is protected. He didn't tell her that a Demi, the degradation that came about from there, they just said, this is one of the things that Islam likes to brag about. They said Islam is, is very tolerant. It has a place for other religions, and it protects them. Well, it protects them if you play the special tax. It protects them if you obey all the rules. It protects them if you don't try to convert another Muslim to Christianity or Judaism. You're talking so, about protecting dhimmis. Yes. So okay. Islam brags that they protect the Jews and have a special place within Islam for the Jews and that they honor the prophets. They honor the Moses. They offer honor David, Adam, Solomon. So see, we're almost like you, and so we, you, you therefore should like us. But they don't tell you what this protection entails, which is complete subjugation. It's like protecting the cattle that you own. Yeah. Or there's another thing which comes about, which is, there's another thing which comes about, which is, you know, the mafia will sell you protection as well. Say say that again. I couldn't quite hear The mafia will sell you protection as well. Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. Right. There are just a few conditions that go with it. There's a few conditions, and they involve money and the same protection of Islam. There's a few conditions, and they involve money, but more importantly, subjugation. By the way, the difference, there's an important difference between a demi and a slave. Slaves are to be treated well. Demis are to be humiliated. Um, right, but like demis get to have their own businesses, right, as long as they give you half the money. Exactly. Okay. okay. That's called protection. But anyway, right. the point is, is this same professor... There was this this point with this lady completely turned when she suddenly realized that I, the guy who was politically incorrect and seemed a little edgy, that what I said was true and that what seemed sweet and nice that came out of his mouth, which had confused her. Now then she suddenly realized he lied to me. He flat lied to me. Right. I think what you're getting at is, is one of the biggest problems that when you're looking at things like national security is concerned, because some people have said, well, you know, the vast majority of people who 
they don't really totally follow Islam or they would be doing what ISIS is doing, but they keep the identity of being part of Islam and they have no intention of doing anything negative to anybody else. They're great people. But how do you tell who is going to go which way because of what you just now said? You can't okay. ask someone because no. according sure. to what Muhammad taught, you are supposed to be deceptive in order to get your work done. See, you've not touched upon the whole business of we have nice people who are call themselves Muslim, but they don't practice all of it or nearly all of it. And so you look at them and you go, well, why don't we trust them? Well, remember, the they're told in their sacred text that the other part, the harsh part of Islam, the jihad part, is there and it is true. And furthermore, their own book says the jihad is better than what you as a mild Muslim are practicing. So they may not be practicing all of Islam because they reject it, but their sacred text says that it is better. And so it is very difficult to find out what a man will do in particular if it comes crunch time. Here's an right. example. And that's a terrible dilemma to be put in if you're born into that system. It's also a terrible what? dilemma to know what to do with people who call themselves Muslims. That is, why shouldn't a Muslim be head of Homeland Security? Well, which Quran will he obey? The Quran of Mecca or the Quran of Medina? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, so that's one reason that people don't want to deal with this issue is that it gets you into, you know, one of the things, you, when I went off to college and was exposed in my freshman and sophomore year to psychology and philosophy, you discover there's a lot of questions which can be asked which are moral and ethical questions which are very difficult to figure out. Well, the whole purpose of dealing with Islam is an ethical question which is very difficult to figure out. How do we deal with this? And I say that humanity has put off this question for 1,400 years and has not wanted to deal with it. Well, probably because there's also no obvious answer. Well, I think that there may be obvious answers, but we don't want to implement them. Okay, well, I'm, yeah, I don't, you certainly, you know, if, if you, for example, are a person who's quite conscious and you have an innate respect for all other human beings and all life, no matter what belief system you're born into, and, and you just intrinsically know that other people are to be honored, similar to how the founders of America said one of the most important phrases in all the founding documents, we hold these truths to be self-evident, not we saw these truths in a journal and we're quoting them. <clears throat> we know them. Mm -hmm. and, and, so, and they can't be taken away by the state because they weren't given by the state. And so, let's say you're a person of that level of consciousness and you're born into Islam or any belief system that says that everybody else has to be lied to so they can be killed if you're a good follower. Um, and it's also illegal to leave that system or you have to be killed. What exactly is it that you do? Well, it's a conundrum, isn't it? Well, I think so, because we, you know, if, if we're making decisions like, you know, I mean, it's not up to me or any of us, but if somebody is making a decision of who gets put into head of Homeland Security and assuming Homeland Security is not corrupt and criminal itself, which is a long stretch. Big assumption. But, yeah, but if it were ever a, a, 
you know, legitimate agency, then deciding who gets put into positions of great responsibility, um, you can't ask people of a belief system that says they can be deceptive in order to overcome you whether they're going to do it or not. I mean, you can ask, but it's kind of a waste of time. Exactly. Exactly. Because if your mode is deception, then what you say to me doesn't matter anyway. It doesn't matter whether you say the sky is blue or the sky is red. It doesn't make right. any difference because you will tell me what is needed to advance. Look, yeah. it's difficult and, to tell and just truth. And just so that we know this is not your belief as some kind of a terrible person, why don't you explain to new people where this idea even comes from, why we're talking about it. Why deception? Yeah, why deception is okay, and this is not just some kind of a nasty idea right, of racist right, people right, right, or right. something. Let me give you two examples. First off, there are 99 names of Allah, and one of them is he is the greatest deceiver. Now think about what I just told you. Allah, the God of the universe, who created the universe, is a deceiver, a plotter, and a schemer. These are all names for Allah. But my favorite way of talking about this is deception is a story about a Jewish poet because he was an intellectual and he wrote a poem and he was not the only poet who wrote a poem about Muhammad that he didn't like. This is just one of two occasions. So Muhammad said, who will kill Ashraf who has offended Allah and his prophet? I will Muhammad, but I will need to deceive him in order to kill him. Do I have your permission to deceive him? Yes, do so. So the man, the Muslim deceived Ashraf, the Jewish poet, killed him, and Muhammad praised him. There's a second case where Muhammad said the same thing. Who will kill Asma Marwan's daughter? I think I have the name right. Who will kill Asma Marwan's daughter? I will, Muhammad. And so the man went into to her bedroom at night while her babe was at the breast, removed the baby, and drove a knife through her that was a dagger that went pinned her to her wooden bed. He came back, and Muhammad praised him. So we have two cases of intellectuals being murdered because they offended Allah, defendant of Muhammad, and, but in one of these, it involved deception. So you can see that, the, let's go back to when I said that there, when I speak, there are usually armed men in the room. Why are there armed men in the room? Because I am an intellectual, who's speaking in a way that there are facts about Islam that could offend some Muslims, and it is within their intellectual tradition to destroy those who offend Allah, offend Muhammad. So I'm just tying all this together. And this, by the way, is not something that Bill made up. These are quotes from Hadith. These are quotes from the doctrine of Islam. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And, And just to be clear... What were the crimes of the offenses of each of those two people that had to be They wrote killed? poems which criticized Muhammad. Okay, okay, right. There's another case. There are repeated cases where intellectual, and this, by the way, is something in which I get grumpy about. Muhammad repeatedly killed intellectuals who opposed him. When he took back Mecca, the first thing he did was to issue death warrants for five people. One was an apostate. One was his former secretary who became an apostate, and the other were dancing girls who had sung and made dances about Muhammad that mocked him. So this killing of intellectuals, 
is not some wacko thing. It is a thread of thought within Islamic doctrine. Why is it, Richard, that it is extraordinary to find an intellectual such as yourself who is willing to discuss this issue? Why is it that most of our intellectuals look at me and say that I'm a hater, a bigot, a racist, and an Islamophobe because all I do is to quote Hadith and to quote Quran? Why is it that our own intellectuals are not outraged and offended that there is a new sheriff in town and the new sheriff in town says, don't be thinking things we don't like or we will kill you? Why is it that the left supports Islam when Islam does not support the idea of free thought? This is a question I have for all intellectuals. Well, you know, it reminds me of, I don't know if it was Aesop or somebody else that wrote the fable about the emperor's new clothes, but Mm -hmm. that wasn't about a recent period of time, and why was it that there was only one, I don't know, five-year-old kid or something that was willing to say that the emperor didn't have any clothes on? You do have a problem here, but the problem we have is not Islam. The problem we have is I'm accusing our own intellectuals of being bankrupt. Right. I'm saying that they're not willing to engage in difficult thoughts. They want to only think easy thoughts. When what do they do with me? They do with me exactly what the head of the department said. He he did not identify. He did not attack my reasoning. He did not attack my facts. He has said it's. He just said Bill is a racist. Bill is a bad yeah. person. Bill is immoral. Yeah, exactly. Why don't all of our intellectuals be more like Richard and be willing to listen to ideas which are provocative, perhaps, but certainly all fact-based reasoning? We've thrown fact-based reasoning out of the window. And so we have the truth and discussion about Islam cannot be on the main stage. It's on small things like the Internet, like you and I are doing now. I'm yeah. I'm interested in the psychological mechanism that's that's underneath that. I mean, you can see it on both sides. You can see it on the side of the person that is within a damaging, you know, uh, belief system, and you can see a person on the outside. Both of them would rather follow a path that ultimately is suicidal than face what's actually going on. Well, it's certainly the case that we're not facing the facts of Islam. That's, I mean, this is just observable. I mean, right. do, you ever, do, you ever get, do you ever get attacked for having somebody like myself on your show? Sure. Okay. Now, how did I know to ask that question? <laughs> just a wild guess. I don't know. Just a wild guess. Or is it 15 years of experience? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, anyway, I, I, I just, condemn our intellectuals. I, I condemn our artists. Why is it that singers and songwriters and movie makers, why is it that they don't make movies about the truth of Islam? Because what Islam says to them is, one day when we're in full power, you will write the movies only that we dictate. You will sing, you will write the songs only that we dictate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you know the fact that, I mean, it's not just Islam. The the government of mainland China, the communist government there, actually more fascist, but... They just uh, are in the process of buying out all six major Hollywood studios. Now, what do you think will happen there? Total freedom, of course. Oh, Richard, you're so right. So perceptive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I was, uh, it's a trend. I mean, Islam is just an example, but. um, You said something very important. There is a whole trend against critical thought. Yeah. Fact-based reasoning is, is considered to be a heresy. Yeah, let me, this is little, not, let me tell you a little I mean, story. Go ahead. There's a little story. We don't think about this, but universities had to be invented. 
and part of the basis of their invention was monastic schools. Now, the purpose of these monastic schools was indoctrination, not critical thought. Mm-hmm. So, authoritative thought means that you need to appeal to an authority. And so, the professor gave an example of how to use authoritative thought. Galen, a respected writer, medical writer, says that a horse has this many teeth. Aristotle mm-hmm. has, says there's this many teeth, which is different from what Galen says. Now, the okay. question for the class is, how do we determine which one is right? Well, who is the greater person? Well, Aristotle is a greater person than Galen, so therefore his number for horse's teeth is the correct number. That's an appeal to authoritative thought. Right. A student got up out of the classroom, went outside, and there was a horse there. He counted the number of teeth in the horse's mouth, came back and said, I've counted the number of teeth in the horse's mouth, and here's the exact number. The professor screamed at him and beat him, and the students mocked him. <laughs> Well, wow. what is happening today in our universities, which used to be places where radical, critical thought could happen? Now then, what happens is, if you bring, go out and count the number of teeth in the horse's mouth, the professor will berate you and beat you, particularly right. the head of the Middle East Department. Right, right. This is a great right. loss. And it does not just about Islam. It is about no. many topics. No, it, it, I think it's an illustration of a bigger point that you just made. Yes. And that, that professor, I guess, was it the professor that beat up the student in that story? Yes. Yeah, that wasn't recent. No, 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 that, that was, was a long centuries time ago. ago. Yeah, and that was probably before the origin of Islam as well, right? No, this was, no? During, what they, this was during the period they call the Dark Ages, which I oh, reject okay. as a name. But, but it wasn't, um, it didn't have anything to do with people who were following Islam. It was no, 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 no. It was simply the idea that we only think what authorities tell us to think. Yeah, and that there's something so terrifying about transgressing that rule that you have to beat up anybody who suggests that you do otherwise. Exactly. What I'm saying is the universities now have come full circle. They used to be devoted to critical thought. Now, critical thought is still being used in accounting and law and physics and mathematics. But in the sort of soft sciences, psychology and sociology and other such things, women's studies, you can't, there, there's no such thing as critical thought. There's only authoritative thought. And right. you will well, be actually, debated. Actually, law is going in that direction now, too. But Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Yeah, there, there's almost no law taught in law schools anymore. It's mostly precedent, and it has to be recent precedent. So, you know, it's going more and more and more toward the authorities just changing the law to whatever they think it should be. I didn't know this. But I'm not, I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's, it's a tool. I mean, it, when law was uh, originated in the U.S., which was largely dependent on what they brought from England and the Magna Carta and ideas like that, it was something to be used by any person to make sure things were, you know, reasonable and fair. And anything that was written as a law that the average person could not understand was immediately declared what they called void for vagueness, and thrown ah. out. Yeah, so <laughs> I now love it's, that. Now it's the opposite, and you you have specialists, uh, Jonathan Gruber in healthcare, and a, a bunch of other people whose skill is to write proposed laws in ways that no one will ever understand. Well, remember the remember the uh, Obamacare. What did That's Nancy Pelosi talking. say? Yeah, yeah. You'll know. Yeah, what you it have to pass there. it right to know what it says, and right. that wasn't quite honest because just passing it. You still couldn't understand what it said. So you have to be victimized by it to understand what it says. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, okay, well, I, I know I, I've kind of led us all over the place today. Oh, we, we've done everything but discuss women today, but we've enjoyed ourselves. So maybe our listening audience will enjoy us as well. I hope so. I, I think, you know, the bottom line that where we got to is something like this is all representative of something much bigger than just issues of yes. Islam. Yes. And, and that is yes. whether humans are going to be aware enough to be true to what is what our founders called self-evident truths. Mm-hmm. You know, or whether they're just going to be victimized by whatever's written down and yep. not even notice what's wrong with the picture. Yep. So, all right. Well, thank you. It's been really fun discussion. It's gone by in about 10 seconds. And <laughs> maybe next time we can get into uh, something controversial like uh, <laughs> slavery or something like that. Okay. Richard, I've had fun. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, there goes Dr. Bill Warner, amazing teacher, and uh, he'll be back before too long. But uh, this was our lesson for tonight on Islam and women. And, uh, boy, I I, I learn a lot every time he comes uh, to, to talk with us. And it's an incredible service, making Islam accessible to understanding by Muslims and non-Muslims. And, and remember, a lot of Muslims that I've talked to anyway say that they've memorized um, everything that they know about Islam, but they never really studied it per se. And tonight, um, Dr. Warner was saying, Muhammad asked for please no difficult questions, which is the first thing that comes up when you start studying anything, you know, because studying means you're questioning it. And you're not supposed to question Islam if you're brought up in it. No difficult questions. So many of the Muslims that I know, who I consider great friends and good people, um, that I really look up to in a lot of ways, um, many of them have not really ever studied Islam. They just memorized it every day since they were old enough to to uh, hear it, and they're told since birth. So what happens when you study your religion to a new level and find... Um, that it demands things that you don't believe in. This is a really difficult situation to be in. Like imagine any religion that you are totally devoted to, and then eventually you start studying it to a level that you've never done before, and you find that it demands deception and hatred of people that don't agree with you, theft from them, murder, torture, um, invasion of countries, just imagine that you're in that situation or, you know, if you're within the, the Islamic system, it's not hard to imagine because if you're willing to see it, that's what is really taught in the scriptures themselves. It's not someone's opinion, except for Muhammad. It's, and it's really, I guess, not his opinion either. It's, he's just conveying it from Allah. So... You know, when you see that God is being portrayed as a supernatural male figure, no question about that. Is Allah is not portrayed as a woman. He's portrayed as a man. Supernatural, but definitely male. Who is, um, uh, it, you know, he's very concerned about everyone worshiping him constantly. He gets very upset if you don't, and anybody that disagrees or doesn't believe... And he literally flies into a rage if you disobey or disbelieve him. When you 
really start digesting that, then you get to a point where no matter what kind of supernatural display happens, pillars of fire, lightning, volcanoes, you know, plagues, if you don't agree, uh, lighting up the whole galaxy, um, making death threats and hell threats to send you to hell forever, um, you stop caring. It's like, yeah, and what else, you know? I mean, it's really great about the, the whole thunder and lightning thing, God, but you're telling me to kill, you're telling me to hate people, and that people who don't agree with me should be sent to hell. Hmm, I don't know. It doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. And you remember quotes, you know, in many different traditions, but one of them that comes to mind is, if I can move mountains, but I don't have love. You know, moving mountains is, is kind of symbolic. It doesn't just mean moving mountains. It means things that seem impossible. If you can, you know, create fire all over the sky and, you know, talk in this amazing voice that the whole world is booming and everything. But you're talking about hating and killing. There's a lot wrong with that picture. And you get to a point in your consciousness when you are willing to wake up enough and question everything, which you need to do if you want whatever's true, then it gets really difficult because you have a choice to make in yourself. And in the end, when you're willing to grow up to that point, you have to be true to yourself, true to God, whatever you see that source to be. And you have to you know, to learn what it means to love, when it says love your neighbor as yourself, it's not just the ones you like, it's all of them. And it has to take precedence over anybody, whoever, however supernatural and impressive they might be, that are telling you to murder and, and, and rape and torture and all this stuff. Because you've got some knowing inside you that God is not malevolent. God is not somebody that wants to destroy everybody who insults him. I mean, it's way beyond that, okay? I mean, even, an, even a mature person is not like that. And you get to a point where you're brave enough to look at that. And besides, how can you love all your neighbors as yourself? You know, you either have to be dishonest and, and pretend that you do when you really don't like most of them, or you have to realize it means something else. And that means that whether somebody deserves it or not in your mind, you want to serve them and give them everything good because the being who's ultimately inside them is the same God that's inside you, no matter what they believe. So you have to serve everybody. And that you know, standing up against a belief system to say that, it's like the founders of America said, we consider these truths to be self-evident. They did not cite a scientific journal where they looked up that everybody should be free. They just knew it. And that's not a conspiracy theory, and it's not, you know, uh, some kind of weird belief. It, it's just when you get to a point of being able to seek more and more clearly then 
certain things become obvious. And that's, that's one reason that people like Inez Cyrus are so inspirational and amazing. And you should go back and hear the, the Lost Arts Radio archive on lostartsradio.com with Inez Cyrus a few weeks ago because she was a, a Muslim woman that escaped from a life-threatening situation in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And instead of hiding in fear and terror, which is justified in that belief system, because they will kill you if you try to convert out of the religion, and you really should think what that means. If you have to threaten somebody's life, like the first caliph did in an earlier lesson, for people that want to leave the belief system, um, that should tell you quite a bit. Because if it's really a beautiful and attractive belief system, you don't have to threaten to kill people who change their mind. And you also honor individual growth and freedom to learn in whatever way each person needs to learn. That's one of those self-evident truths. So, you put yourself and God first above religion, and that's really hard for people because they've got so much tied up in the religion that if they find out that it demands murder, it's just too threatening and too terrifying to drop it. And so they'll support the murder. And, and we, as a species, humanity has to grow beyond that because the real God and the real source of life and real nature, which came from the same place, those are not threatened by what we say or what we believe. They can never be threatened. So we don't have to worry about their well-being. And whatever we come to has to be honest. You know, pretending to believe something when you're not really sure is just not honest and it holds up your own growth. So religion can be wonderful if it serves truth and love and it makes you act, you know, incredibly kindly toward everybody else and not condemn anybody. And you look at what's going on in your own mind and it guides you in a good direction, that's great. If it leads you toward murder and dishonor of all of, you know, the creation of that same source, then if you're brave, it gets dumped. And in history, I mean, I said that briefly, but that's a really big deal. Almost very few people are strong enough to do that. And that's why you have almost no complaint out of the Muslim community when you have suicide bombers. Why? Why wouldn't they all be immediately saying how terrible that is? It's because it threatens the whole belief system. And many of them know that Muhammad said you have to kill everybody who doesn't convert. So this is a big issue. And every religion has been used for murder, as, I've, as far as I've been able to tell. I was really really amazed, you know, even Buddhism, which you think of as ultimately pacifist and peaceful and everything. Um, there's an instance in Africa that I found where even the Buddhists were killing all the other people who weren't Buddhists in their town. I think it was Sikhs that they were killing. But it doesn't really matter who. It's always the people who don't have the right belief and the people that God doesn't want to survive. The people that God hates, you have to go help God by killing them. This is common to almost every religion at some point in history. And people are just not in touch enough with reality to say, no, we're not going to do it. 
I don't care if it, a whole mountain light, lights up and says to do it. I'm not doing it. You have to get to that point. And it, it's very challenging. You, you can only get there when you're ready. And you just get tired of, you know, being uh, brainwashed in your life. You get really tired of it. And you start feeling like there's something real to all of this stuff. It's not just that you parrot one belief system or another and try to kill everybody else. There's something even better than that. So, and it's not just with the religion, you know, that we consider religions either. This same exact issue comes up, as I mentioned, with other religions, like the religion of vaccinism, that where they say everybody knows vaccines are the most wonderful um, advancement of science in the last 200 years, which is about back to when they were started, 1790 or so. You have exactly the same thing as I'm talking about with the terrorism. You have the vaccinism adherents to that religion who are willing to kill you if you don't want to be vaccinated because they say you're endangering all the good people who are vaccinated, even though there's no logic in that at all. It's totally ridiculous. Because if vaccines, vaccines were wonderful, it wouldn't matter about the people who didn't get them because the other ones would be protected, right? Well, no, they don't work. That's the problem. The people who get vaccinated, a lot of them get the disease anyway. So they don't work at all and they kill a lot of people. But because it's too threatening to consider that the religion of scientism and vaccinism might be wrong, they're just attack. It's just exactly like the terrorists. And the same thing happens with the belief in GMOs, belief in nuclear power being wonderful, uh, belief in geoengineering to save the world from global warming. Complete nonsense, not because global warming may not be real, but because it's not the issue. The issue is poisoning the earth. And yet geoengineering is becoming a career path in universities all over the country, all over the world, sorry, while the authorities say it doesn't exist. Same thing with military invasions. You know, when you're in the military and you're told to kill everybody in a village in the Middle East and they haven't done anything, that's the religion there. And it's, it's the same challenge to say, no, I'm not going to murder those people knowing that the military around you may kill you, but you can't do something against life like that once you get to a certain point. Same thing with all kinds of racism. You can't fall for it. The idea that any so-called race, different color skin or anything, is better or worse than anybody else is just totally ridiculous, and you can't fall for that, or sexism or classism, or any of that nonsense. It's all religion of stupid kinds. And it's very hard because of peer pressure to stand up and say, no, it's, it's like that fable that I really like about the uh, emperor's new clothes, right? The emperor's going by, and read the story, it's great. But at, in the very end of it, the emperor's parading down the street with no clothes on. And no, everybody's afraid to say it, except for this one little kid. And he screams out that... Uh, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl, but they scream out that the emperor has, is naked and everybody else can start talking about it then. Well, when the emperor has new clothes, any religion, whether it's, you know, vaccinism or anything else, you get to a certain point, you just have to say that the, 
the emperor doesn't have clothes on, okay? That's just what's going on. So health at a deeper level become, requires that kind of honesty. You have to clean out your body to start, and you have to nourish it, live food and organic food and all this stuff. You need to learn about how to use fasting to clean it out, things like that. And then it makes it easier for your mind to start growing up. And then you don't want to hurt anybody. And as you get cleaner, you don't want to cause any pain or even hurt anybody's feelings for humans or animals or anybody. And you find a level of the greatest power which the destructive people in the world cannot access or even understand. And it comes out of complete kindness to everybody. It doesn't mean you can't defend yourself, okay, or others, even with lethal force if you have to in some cases. That's why firearms rights are absolutely critical to preserve. But you don't have hatred of anybody, and you don't want to hurt anybody. You would just do defensive things when there's no alternative. But you, what you want is harmonization, harmony with life energy. And then when you do that, inside yourself, even if you say nothing, it affects other people around you. And then the need to fight goes away. It's very powerful. And the most advanced martial arts people and everything, they know this. And we need to, to do something that they've shown. That's where the power comes from. It's inside. So that's our homework as far as I'm concerned. And time is going by. And you have to think, when, when do I plan to actually do this? Now would be good. So remember, visit the website, lostartsradio.com. See the new videos and articles that are going up there all the time. Get the free newsletter. Um, look at the new forum that Doug set up. It's really great. Alex Jones News can be seen on our videos every day without commercials. Donate to keeping us going. If you have the, the resources, please. And uh, there's a donate button there. And then remember the Saturday show. That's a free call-in, question and answers. Details on the site, 8 o'clock Pacific, 11 o'clock Eastern, Saturday mornings. And uh, same place as you're listening to this show. And uh, come, part, come be part of it. I'd really like to talk to you there. Have a great week. And uh, start appreciating every single experience that comes to you. There's a lesson in it. Use it. We'll see you next time. Find us on Facebook.